Vipassana meditation retreats, or a Vipassana retreat, 100 fudge Sundays. It just happens to come out that way. In fact, one could even further say that is precisely the key to their value. Just as commodities have economic value because they can be compared precisely with other commodities, values are valuable because they cannot be compared with anything. They are each considered unique, incommensurable, in a word, priceless. It seems to me that the words value and values have become our common-sense shorthand for how to think about such complicated questions. It's not a terrible one. Still, even this is more an ideal of how we like to think things should work than an accurate representation of how they actually do work. After all, it's not as if life is really divided between an economy, where everyone thinks only about money and material self-interest, and a series of other spheres, politics, religion, family, and so on, where people behave entirely differently. Real motives are always mixed. It's always important to emphasize here that for most of human history, it would never have occurred to anyone that it would be possible to even make such distinctions. The very idea of either pure self-interest or pure selfless altruism would have seemed equally bizarre. Just as bizarre, in fact, as the idea of selling one's time. Such concepts became possible only with the rise of impersonal markets across Eurasia, roughly around 600 BC. The invention of coinage made it possible to create markets where strangers could interact with one another only with an eye to material advantage. Wherever these cash markets appeared, whether in China, India, or the Mediterranean world, they were quickly followed by the birth of universal religions that in every case preached that material things were not important and that the pious should give their goods selflessly to charity. But no attempt to create an absolute firewall between material selfishness and selfless idealism, value and values, has ever been successful. Each always ends up leaking into the other. This leakage, it should be emphasized, is not just in one direction. Yes, it often turns out that artists, idealists, priests, and statesmen will turn out to be secretly pursuing some personal material advantage, or sometimes something even worse. But it is equally the case that businessmen will often take pride in their honor or integrity, or workers will agonize over whether their work actually does anyone any good. This was certainly the primary consideration of those who wondered about the larger meaning of their jobs. In most of the testimonies I collected, meaningful was just a synonym for helpful and valuable for beneficial. Let's take a glance at some of the ways people reflected on the value of their jobs. Car salesman. I work for a large used car finance company in the United States that caters to the subprime market. Oftentimes, I find myself wondering if my job really has any value at all besides to the owners of the company. Aerospace engineer. The senior management are happy to work 50 to 60 hours a week and encourage all their minions to do likewise, to be seen to be busy, but without ever producing anything of value. True, if knowledge and new technology are created as byproducts, then one could argue that the job retains some value. In some instances of my job, this did occur, but it tended to be the exception rather than the rule. Telemarketer. It's a job with no social value whatsoever. 
At least if you stack shelves at a supermarket, you are doing something that benefits people. Everybody needs groceries and the things supermarkets sell. In call center work, the calls are essentially time-wasting nuisance calls. Freelance Academic Translator Over the years, I have translated papers from just about every academic discipline, from ecology to corporate law, social science to computer science. The vast majority of it is of no discernible value to humanity whatsoever. Pharmacist I entered the medical profession under the assumption that my job would be meaningful and my work would be helpful. In reality, I've realized most of the medical field is a house of cards. I would contest the idea that doctors have genuinely helpful jobs. Civil servant. Neither of these jobs helped anyone in any way. Civil servants in particular would favor the term help over value, though its use was by no means limited to civil servants. None of this is likely to be news to most readers. This is the way pretty much anyone might talk about his job if he had to reflect on it in the abstract. As Eric's father remarked in Chapter 3, after dutifully chewing Eric out as a nonsensical idiot for quitting such a high-paying job, well, what good could that job do for anyone anyway? The telemarketer cited above made an explicit appeal to the concept of social value, value to society as a whole. This concept came up periodically in other accounts as well. Homeowner Association Manager Managing homeowners associations is 100% bullshit. Wealthy people buy a condo building with a bunch of other wealthy strangers, then hire someone else to manage and maintain it. The only reason this job exists is that the owners don't like or trust each other. I did this job for three years and never saw one hint of social value. Or recall Nigel, the data perfecter, already quoted in Chapter 4, who spent hundreds of hours staring at company loyalty card information looking for non-existent mistakes. Data Perfector I really think that if we had been processing applications for something that had a more obvious social value, organ transplant registration, say, or tickets to Glastonbury, then it would have felt different. It's interesting to juxtapose these two because they show that for most people, social value isn't just about creating wealth or even leisure. It is equally about creating sociability. Organ donation allows people to save one another's lives. The Glastonbury Music Festival allows them to slog through the mud together, smoking drugs and playing or listening to their favorite music. That is, to give one another joy and happiness. Such collective experiences can be considered of obvious social value. In contrast, making it easier for rich people to avoid one another, it's a notorious thing that very wealthy people almost invariably dislike their neighbors, shows not one hint of social value. Now, social value of this sort clearly can't be measured, and undoubtedly, if one were to sit down with any one of the workers whose testimonies I've cited, one would find that each had a slightly different idea of what was useful or valuable to society and what was not. Still. I suspect they would all have agreed on at least two things. First, that the most important things one gets out of a job are, one, money to pay the bills, and two, the opportunity to make a positive contribution to the world. Second, that there is an inverse relation between the two.
the more your work helps and benefits others, and the more social value you create, the less you are likely to be paid for it. Concerning the inverse relationship between the social value of work and the amount of money one is likely to be paid for it. Virtutum omnium pretium in ipsis est. Epictetus. I made this point in the original Bullshit Jobs article in 2013 because it had struck me during my experience with Occupy Wall Street two years earlier. One of the most frequently heard complaints from supporters of the movement, particularly the ones working too much to spend much time in the camps, but who could only show up for marches or to express support on the web, ran along the lines of, I wanted to do something useful with my life work that had a positive effect on other people, or at the very least wasn't hurting anyone. But the way this economy works, if you spend your working life caring for others, you'll end up so underpaid and so deeply in debt, you won't be able to care for your own family. There was a deep and abiding sense of rage at the injustice of such arrangements. I began to refer to it, mostly to myself, as the revolt of the caring classes. At the same time, Occupiers in Manhattan's Zuccotti Park regularly reported conversations with young Wall Street traders who drop by and say things to the effect of, Look, I know you guys are right. I'm not contributing anything positive to the world, the system is corrupt, and I'm probably part of the problem. I'd quit tomorrow if you could show me how to live in New York on a less-than-six-figure salary. Some of the testimonies we've already read echoed similar dilemmas. Think here of Annie, who noted how many women taking care of preschoolers were ultimately forced to quit and find office jobs to pay the rent. Or Hannibal, the medical researcher who summed up his experience in the medical field with the formula, the amount of money I can charge for doing the work I do is almost perfectly inversely correlated with how useful it is. That there's a real problem here can be demonstrated by a simple thought experiment proposed in the original 2013 piece. Imagine if a certain class of people were to simply vanish. Let me expand on this for a moment. If we all woke up one morning and discovered that not only nurses, garbage collectors, and mechanics, but for that matter, bus drivers, grocery store workers, firefighters, or short-order chefs had been whisked away into another dimension, the results would be equally catastrophic. If elementary school teachers were to vanish, most school children would likely celebrate for a day or two but the long-term effects would be, if anything, even more devastating. And while we can no doubt argue about the relative merits of death metal versus klezmer music, or romance novels versus science fiction, there's no doubt that even if the sudden disappearance of certain categories of authors, artists, or musicians left certain sectors of the population indifferent or even happy, for others, the world would become a far more dismal and depressing place. I'm assuming that there is no genre of music, art, etc. that doesn't cause more happiness for some than it annoys others. I could be wrong. The same cannot be said of hedge fund managers, political consultants, marketing gurus, lobbyists, corporate lawyers, or people whose job it is to apologize for the fact that the carpenter didn't come. As Finn said of his software licensing firm in Chapter 4, If I showed up on Monday and the building had disappeared, not only would society not care, I would neither. And there are certainly office buildings in the world, 
I'm sure anyone reading this book can think just off the top of her head of several, that were they to simply vanish, would leave the world much better off. Yet in many of these are precisely the people who get paid the very highest salaries. In fact, it often happens that, at the very top of organizations, apparently crucial positions can go unfilled for long periods of time without there being any noticeable effect, even on the organization itself. In recent years, Belgium has gone through a series of constitutional crises that have left it temporarily without a sitting government. No prime minister and no one in charge of health, transportation, or education. These crises have been known to continue for considerable periods of time, the record so far is 541 days, without there being any observable negative impact on health, transportation, or education. One has to imagine that if the situation were to endure for decades, it would make some sort of difference. But it's not clear how much of one or whether the positive effects would outweigh the negative ones. Some Belgian friends told me the net effects were extremely beneficial, as almost all major parties were committed to the then-European-wide consensus about the need for austerity, but the lack of a government in Belgium at that critical moment meant reforms were not carried out and the Belgian economy ended up growing substantially faster than its neighbors. It's also worth noting that Belgium does have seven different regional governments that were unaffected. Similarly, at time of writing, the Uber Corporation, considered one of the world's most dynamic, has seen the resignation not only of its founder, Travis Kalanick, but a host of other top executives, with the result that it is currently operating without a CEO, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, or chief marketing officer, all without any apparent effect on day-to-day -day operations. Similarly, there's a reason why those who work in the financial sector and who have extremely well-paid occupations more generally almost never go on strike. As Rutger Bergman likes to point out, in 1970, there was a six-month bank strike in Ireland. Rather than the economy grinding to a halt as the organizers had anticipated, most people simply continued to write checks, which began to circulate as a form of currency, but otherwise carried on much as they had before. Two years before, when garbage collectors had gone on strike for a mere ten days in New York, the city caved in to their demands because it had become uninhabitable. Even police strikes rarely have the anticipated effects. In December 2015, New York police carried out a work stoppage for all but urgent police business. There was no effect on crime rate, but city revenues plummeted owing to the lack of fines for traffic violation and similar infractions. The complete disappearance of police in a major city either owing to a full strike or, in one documented case in Amsterdam during World War II, mass arrest by German occupiers, tends to lead to a rise in property crime like burglary, but leave violent crime unaffected. In rural areas with some tradition of self-governance, like the part of Madagascar where I lived between 1989 and 1991, the withdrawal of police due to IMF austerity measures made almost no difference at all. When I visited again 20 years later, people were almost universally convinced that violent crime had increased sharply since the police had returned. Very few economists have actually attempted to measure the overall social value of different professions. Most would probably take the very idea as something of a fool's errand. 
but those who have tried tend to confirm that there is indeed an inverse relation between usefulness and pay. In a 2017 paper, U.S. economists Benjamin B. Lockwood, Charles G. Nathanson, and E. Glenn Whale combed through the existing literature on the externalities, social costs, and spillover effects, social benefits, associated with a variety of highly paid professions to see if it were possible to calculate how much each adds to or subtracts from the economy overall. They concluded that while in some cases, notably anything associated with creative industries, the values involved were just too subjective to measure, in other cases a rough approximation was possible. Their conclusion? The most socially valuable workers whose contributions could be calculated are medical researchers, who add $9 of overall value to society for every $1 they are paid. The least valuable were those who worked in the financial sector, who on average subtract a net $1.80 in value from society for every $1 of compensation. And of course, workers in the financial sector are often compensated extremely well. Here was their overall breakdown. Researchers, plus nine. School teachers, plus one. Engineers, plus point two. Consultants and IT professionals, zero. Lawyers, minus point two. Advertisers and marketing professionals, minus point three. Managers, minus point eight. Financial sector, minus one point five. This would certainly seem to confirm a lot of people's gut suspicions about the overall value of such professions. So it's nice to see it spelled out, but the author's focus on the most highly paid professionals makes it of limited use for present purposes. School teachers are probably the lowest paid workers on the list, at least on average, and many researchers get by on very little. So the results certainly don't contradict a negative relation between pay and usefulness. But to get a real sense of the full gamut of employment, one needs a broader sample. The closest I know to such a study that does use such a broader sample was one carried out by the New Economic Foundation in the United Kingdom, whose authors applied a method called Social Return on Investment Analysis to examine six representative occupations, three high income, three low. Here's a summary of the results. City Banker Yearly salary, circa five million pounds. Estimated seven pounds of social value destroyed for every one pound earned. Advertising executive. Yearly salary, circa five hundred thousand pounds. Estimated eleven pound fifty pence of social value destroyed per one pound paid. Tax accountant. Yearly salary, circa one hundred twenty-five thousand pounds. Estimated 11 pounds 20 pence of social value destroyed per one pound paid. Hospital cleaner. Yearly income circa 13,000 pounds. Six pounds 26 pence per hour. Estimated 10 pounds of social value generated per one pound paid. Recycling worker. Yearly income circa 12,500 pounds. Six pounds 10 pence per hour. Estimated 12 pounds in social value generated per one pound paid. Nursery worker. Salary circa 11,500 pounds. 
estimated seven pounds in social value generated per one pound paid. I have standardized and averaged out some of the salaries, which the original report gave sometimes as hourly wages, sometimes as yearly salaries, but in the latter case, usually as ranges. The authors admit that many of their calculations are somewhat subjective, as all such calculations must be, and the study focuses only on the top and bottom of the income scale. As a result, it leaves out the majority of jobs discussed in this book, which are mostly mid-range in pay, and in most cases at least, the social benefit is neither positive nor negative, but seems to hover around zero. Still, as far as it goes, it strongly confirms the general principle that the more one's work benefits others, the less one tends to be paid for it. There are exceptions to this principle. Doctors are the most obvious. Physician salaries tend to the upper end of the scale, especially in America, yet they do seem to play an indisputably beneficial role. Yet even here, there are health professionals who would argue they're not as much exceptions as they might seem, such as the pharmacist cited a few pages back, who is convinced most doctors contribute very little to human health or happiness, but are mainly just dispensers of placebos. This may or may not be the case. Frankly, I don't have the competence to say, but if nothing else, the off-sided fact that the overwhelming majority of improvement in longevity since 1900 is really due to hygiene, nutrition, and other public health improvements and not to improvements in medical treatment suggests a case could be made that the very poorly paid nurses and cleaners employed in a hospital are actually more responsible for positive health outcomes than the hospital's very highly paid physicians. There are a smattering of other exceptions. Many plumbers and electricians, for instance, do quite well despite their usefulness. Some low-paid work is fairly pointless, but in large measure, the rule does seem to hold true. Another exception would be highly paid athletes or entertainers. Many get paid so much they are often held out as avatars of bullshit, but I would tend to disagree. If such people succeed in bringing happiness or excitement into others' lives, why not? Obviously, questions could be raised about how much more they are responsible for that happiness and excitement than the teams surrounding them, support staff and the like, most of whom are paid far less. The reasons for this inverse relation between social benefit and level of compensation, however, are quite another matter. None of the obvious answers seem to work. For instance, education levels are very important in determining salary levels, but if this were simply a matter of training and education, the American higher education system would hardly be in the state that it is, with thousands of exquisitely trained PhDs subsisting on adjunct teaching jobs that leave them well below the poverty line, even dependent on food stamps. If it had anything to do with the dangers of the job, on the other hand, the highest-paid workers in America would be either loggers or fishermen, and in Britain, farmers. On the other hand, if we were simply talking about supply and demand, it would be impossible to understand why American nurses are paid so much less than corporate lawyers, despite the fact that the United States is currently experiencing an acute shortage of trained nurses and a glut of law school graduates. One, in my opinion, rather obtuse economist and blogger named Alex Tabarrok wrote a response to my original bullshit jobs piece that claimed my point about the 
inverse relation of pay and social benefit was a great example of faulty economic reasoning, since he said, I was simply talking about the diamond's water paradox, which goes back to the Middle Ages and Adam Smith famously used to propose a distinction between use value and exchange value, that he said had been solved a century ago with the introduction of the concept of marginal utility. Actually, my impression was that it had been solved at least as far back as Galileo, but the bizarre thing about his claim is that I hadn't engaged in economic reasoning at all, since I didn't propose any explanation for the inverse relation, but just pointed out that it exists. How can simply pointing out a fact be faulty reasoning? The example of the relative supply of nurses is drawn from Peter Fraser's reply to that piece. For the glut of lawyers, see, for instance, L.M. Sixel, a glut of lawyers dims job prospects for many. I might note that Tabarrok's ploy, take a simple empirical observation and pretend it's an economic argument and then refute it, seems to be common among bad economic bloggers. I once saw a simple observation I had made that kind-hearted merchants will sometimes give poor customers a discount on necessities, characterized as an attempted refutation of economic theory, which the blogger then went on to disprove as if economists really believed no merchant ever did anything out of kindness. Whatever the reasons, and myself, I believe that class power and class loyalty have a great deal to do with it, what is perhaps most disturbing about the situation is the fact that so many people not only acknowledge the inverse relation, but also feel this is how things ought to be. That virtue, as the ancient Stoics used to argue, should be its own reward. Arguments like this have long been made about teachers. It's commonplace to hear that grade school or middle school teachers shouldn't be paid well, or certainly not as well as lawyers or executives, because one wouldn't want people motivated primarily by greed to be teaching children. The argument would make a certain amount of sense if it were applied consistently, but it never is. I have yet to hear anyone make the same argument about doctors. One might even say that the notion that those who benefit society should not be paid too well is a perversion of egalitarianism. Let me explain what I mean by this. The moral philosopher G.A. Cohen argued that a case could be made for equality of income for all members of society based on the following logic, or at least this is my own bastardized summary. Why, he begins, might one pay certain people more than others? Normally, the justification is that some produce more or benefit society more than others. But then we must ask why they do so. 1. If some people are more talented than others, for example, have a beautiful singing voice or a comic genius or a math whiz, we say they are gifted. If someone has already received a benefit, a gift, then it makes no sense to give them an additional benefit, more money, for that reason. 2. If some people work harder than others, it is usually impossible to establish the degree to which this is because they have a greater capacity for work, a gift again, and the degree to which it is because they choose to work harder. In the former case, it would again make no sense to reward them further for having an innate advantage over others. 3. Even if it could be proved that some work harder than others purely out of choice, one would then have to establish whether they did so out of altruistic motives, that is, they produced more because they wished to benefit society, or out of selfish motives, 
because they sought a larger proportion for themselves. 4. In the former case, if they produced more because they were striving to increase social wealth, then giving them a disproportionate share of that wealth would contradict their purpose. It would only make moral sense to reward those driven by selfish motives. 5. Since human motives are generally shifting and confused, one cannot simply divide the workforce into egoists and altruists. One is left with the choice of either rewarding everyone who makes greater effort or not doing so. Either option means that some people's intentions will be frustrated. Altruists will be frustrated in their attempts to benefit society, while egoists will be frustrated in their attempts to benefit themselves. If one is forced to choose one or the other, it makes better moral sense to frustrate the egoists. Therefore, people should not be paid more or otherwise rewarded for greater effort or productivity at work. The logic is impeccable. Many of the underlying assumptions could no doubt be challenged on a variety of grounds, but in this chapter I'm not so much interested in whether there is, in fact, a moral case for equal distribution of income, as much as observing that in many ways our society seems to have embraced in points three and four, just without one, two, five, or six. Critically, it rejects the premise that it is impossible to sort workers by motives. One need only look at what sorts of careers a worker has chosen. Is there any reason a person might be doing this job other than the money? If so, then that person should be treated as if point four applies. As a result, there is a sense that those who choose to benefit society, and especially those who have the gratification of knowing they benefit society, really have no business also expecting middle-class salaries, paid vacations, and generous retirement packages. By the same token, there's also a feeling that those who have to suffer from the knowledge they are doing pointless or even harmful work just for the sake of the money ought to be rewarded with more money for exactly that reason. One sees this on the political level all the time. In the UK, for instance, eight years of austerity have seen effective pay cuts to almost all government workers who provide immediate and obvious benefits to the public. Nurses, bus drivers, firefighters, railroad information booth workers, emergency medical personnel. It has come to the point where there are full-time nurses who are dependent on charity food banks. Yet creating this situation became such a point of pride for the party in power that parliamentarians were known to give out collective cheers on voting down bills proposing to give nurses or police a raise. The same party took a notoriously indulgent view of the sharply rising compensation of those city bankers who had very nearly crashed the world economy a few years before. Yet that government remained highly popular. There is a sense, it would seem, that an ethos of collective sacrifice for the common good should fall disproportionately on those who are already, by their choice of work, engaged in sacrifice for the common good or who simply have the gratification of knowing their work is productive and useful. This can make sense only if one first assumes that work, more specifically paid work, is a value in itself. Indeed, so much a value in itself that either the motives of the person taking the job or the effects of the work are at best secondary considerations. The flip side of the left-wing protest marchers waving signs demanding more jobs is the right-wing onlooker muttering, get a job, as they pass by. There seems a broad consensus, not so much even that work is good, but that not working is very bad. 
that anyone who is not slaving away harder than he'd like at something he doesn't especially enjoy is a bad person, a scrounger, a skyver, a contemptible parasite unworthy of sympathy or public relief. This feeling is echoed as much in the liberal politicians' protest against the sufferings of hard-working people, what about those who work with only moderate intensity, as it is in conservative protests about skyvers and welfare queens. Even more strikingly, the same values are now applied at the top. No longer do we hear much about the idle rich. This is not because they don't exist, but because their idleness is no longer celebrated. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, impoverished audiences liked to watch high-society movies about the romantic escapades of playboy millionaires. Nowadays, they are more likely to be regaled with stories of heroic CEOs and their dawn-to-midnight workaholic schedules. In England, newspapers and magazines even write similar things about the royal family who, we now learn, spend so many hours a week preparing for and executing their ritual functions that they barely have time to have a private life at all. Back in the 1990s, when I still used to argue with libertarians, I found they would almost invariably justify inequality in terms of work. If I would observe, say, that some disproportionate share of social wealth was being distributed upward, a typical response would be along the lines of, to me, this just shows that some people are working harder or working smarter than others. This particular formulation always stuck in my head because of the telltale slipperiness. One cannot, of course, really argue that a CEO who makes a thousand times more than a bus driver is working a thousand times harder, so you slip in smarter, which implies more productive, but in fact here just seems to be in a way for which you're paid much more. All that saves this statement from absolutely meaningless circularity, they're smart because they're rich, because they're smart, and on and on, is that it emphasizes that most of the very rich do have jobs. Many testimonies remarked on this work-as-an-end-in-itself morality. Clement had what he described as a BS job evaluating grants at a public university in the Midwest. During his off hours, which was most of them, he spent a lot of time on the web familiarizing himself with alternative political perspectives and eventually came to realize much of the money flowing through his office was intimately tied to the U.S. war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. He quit, and, to the surprise and consternation of his co-workers, took a significantly lower-paying job with the local municipality. There, he said the work is harder, but at least some of it is interesting and helpful to humans. One of the things that puzzled Clement was the way that everyone at his old job felt they had to pretend to one another they were overwhelmed by the responsibilities, despite the obvious fact that they had very little to do. Clement My colleagues often discussed how busy things would get and how hard they work, even though they would routinely be gone at two or three in the afternoon. What is the name for this kind of public denial of the crystal-clear reality? My mind keeps going back to the pressure to value ourselves and others on the basis of how hard we work at something we'd rather not be doing. I believe this attitude exists in the air around us. We sniff it into our noses and exhale it as a social reflex in small talk. It is one of the guiding principles of social relations here. If you're not destroying your mind and body via paid work, you're not living right. 
Are we to believe that we are sacrificing for our kids or something who we don't get to see because we're at work all fucking day? Clement felt this kind of pressure was especially acute in what he described as the German-Protestant-inflected culture of the American Midwest. Others spoke of Puritanism, but the feeling does not appear to be limited to Protestant or North Atlantic environments. It exists everywhere. The differences are more a matter of varying degrees and intensities. And if the value of work is in part the fact that it's something we'd rather not be doing, it stands to reason that anything we would wish to be doing is less like work and more like play or a hobby or something we might consider doing in our spare time and thereby less deserving of material reward. Probably we shouldn't be paid for it at all. This certainly resonates with my own experience. Most academics are first drawn to their careers because they love knowledge and are excited by ideas. After all, pretty much anyone capable of spending seven years earning a Ph.D. knows that she could just as easily have spent three years in law school and come out with a starting salary many times higher. Yet despite that, when two academics in the same department hobnob over coffee, a love of knowledge or excitement about ideas is likely to be the last thing they express. Instead, they will almost invariably complain about how overwhelmed they are with administrative responsibilities. True, this is partly because academics actually are expected to spend less and less of their time reading and writing and more and more time dealing with administrative problems. But even if one is pursuing some exciting new intellectual discovery, it would be seen as inconsiderate to act as if one was enjoying one's work when others clearly aren't. This is why the books they produce become ever shorter, more simplistic, and less well-researched. Some academic environments are more anti-intellectual than others, but everywhere, at the very least, there is a sense that the pleasurable aspects of one's calling, such as thinking, were not really what one is being paid for. They were better seen as occasional indulgences one is granted in recognition of one's real work, which is largely about filling out forms. Academics aren't paid for writing or reviewing research articles, but at least the universities that do pay them acknowledge, however reluctantly, that research is part of their job description. In the business world, it's worse. For instance, Jeff Schullenberger, a writing professor at New York University, reacted to my original 2013 essay with a blog pointing out that many businesses now feel that if there's work that's gratifying in any way at all, they really shouldn't have to pay for it. For Graeber, bullshit jobs carry with them a moral imperative. If you're not busy all the time doing something, anything, doesn't really matter what it is, you're a bad person. But the flip side of that logic seems to be, if you actually like doing X activity, if it is valuable, meaningful, and carries intrinsic rewards for you, it is wrong for you to expect to be paid well for it. You should give it freely, even, especially, if by doing so you are allowing others to profit. In other words, we'll make a living from you doing what you love for free, but we'll keep you in check by making sure you have to make a living doing what you hate. Schullenberger gave the example of translation work. Translating a paragraph or document from one language to another, particularly from a dry business document, is not a task that many people would do for fun. Still, one can imagine some reasons people might do it other than the money. They are trying to perfect their language abilities, for example. 
Therefore, most executives' first instinct, upon hearing that translation work is required, is to try to see if they can't find some way to make someone do it for free. Yet these very same executives are willing to shell out handsome salaries for vice presidents for creative development and the like who do absolutely nothing. In fact, such executives might themselves be vice presidents for creative development and do nothing at all other than trying to figure out how to get others to do work for free. Schellenberger speaks of an emerging voluntariat, with capitalist firms increasingly harvesting the results not of paid labor, but of unpaid interns, internet enthusiasts, activists, volunteers, and hobbyists, and digitally sharecropping the results of popular enthusiasm and creativity to privatize and market the results. The free software industry, perversely enough, has become a paradigm in this respect. The listener may recall Pablo, who introduced the notion of duct taping in Chapter 2. Software engineering work was divided between the interesting and challenging work of developing core technologies and the tedious labor of applying duct tape to allow different core technologies to work together because the designers had never bothered to think about their compatibility. His main point, though, was that increasingly, open source means that all the really engaging tasks are done for free. Pablo. Where two decades ago companies dismissed open source software and developed core technologies in-house, nowadays companies rely heavily on open source and employ software developers almost entirely to apply duct tape on core technologies they get for free. In the end, you can see people doing the non-gratifying duct taping work during office hours and then doing gratifying work on core technologies during the night. This leads to an interesting vicious circle. Given that people choose to work on core technologies for free, no company is investing in those technologies. The underinvestment means that the core technologies are often unfinished, lacking quality, have a lot of rough edges, bugs, etc. That, in turn, creates need for duct tape and thus proliferation of duct taping jobs. Paradoxically, the more that software engineers collaborate online to do free creative labor simply for the love of doing it, as a gift to humanity, the less incentive they have to make them compatible with other such software, and the more those same engineers will have to be employed in their day jobs fixing the damage, doing the sort of maintenance work that no one would be willing to do for free. He concludes, Pablo. My guess is that we are going to see the same dynamics in other industries as well. E.g., if people are willing to write news articles for free, nobody would pay professional journalists. Instead, the money will be redirected to the PR and advertisement industries. Eventually, the quality of news will decrease because of lack of funding. One could argue that this has already begun to happen, as fewer and fewer newspapers and news services employ actual reporters. My purpose here, though, is not to unravel the complex and often arcane labor arrangements that grow out of this ethos, but simply to document the existence of the ethos itself. Attitudes toward labor have changed. Why? How have so many humans reached the point where they accept that even miserable, unnecessary work is actually morally superior to no work at all? Here, we must consider the history of changing ideas about work itself. On the Theological Roots of Our Attitudes Toward Labor 
Man is made to be in the visible universe an image and likeness of God himself, and he is placed in it in order to subdue the earth. Only man is capable of work, and only man works, at the same time by work occupying his existence on earth. Pope John Paul II, Laborum Exercens, on Human Labor, 1981. We may define labor as any exertion of mind or body undergone partly or wholly with a view to some good other than the pleasure derived from the work. Alfred Marshall, Principles of Economics, 1890. What is work? Normally, we see it as the opposite of play. Play, in turn, is defined most often as action that one does for its own sake, for pleasure or just for the sake of doing it. Work, therefore, is activity, typically onerous and repetitive, that one does not carry out for its own sake, and that one probably would never carry out for its own sake, or, if one did, certainly not for very long, but engages in only to accomplish something else, to obtain food, for example, or build a mausoleum. Most languages have some word that translates at least roughly as work, but the precise borders between what we designate work, play, teaching, learning, ritual, or nurturance tend to vary a great deal from one culture to another. The particular tradition that has come to shape sensibilities about work in most parts of the world today harkens back to the Eastern Mediterranean, where it is first documented in the early chapters of the book of Genesis and in the works of the Greek epic poet Hesiod. In both the story of the Garden of Eden and in the myth of Prometheus, the fact that humans have to work is seen as their punishment for having defied a divine creator. But at the same time, in both, work itself, which gives humans the ability to produce food, clothing, cities, and ultimately our own material universe, is presented as a more modest instantiation of the divine power of creation itself. We are, as the existentialists like to put it, condemned to be free, forced to wield the divine power of creation against our will, since most of us would really rather be naming the animals in Eden, dining on nectar and ambrosia at feasts on Mount Olympus, or watching cooked geese fly into our waiting gullets in the land of cocaine, than having to cover ourselves with cuts and calluses to coax sustenance from the soil. Now, one could argue that this is simply in each case a poetic extrapolation of the two key aspects of what has become our common definition of work. First, that it is something no one would ordinarily wish to be doing for its own sake, hence punishment. Second, that we do it anyway to accomplish something beyond the work itself, hence creation. But the fact that this something beyond should be conceived as creation is not self-evident. In fact, it's somewhat odd. After all, most work can't be said to create anything. Most of it is a matter of maintaining and rearranging things. Bertrand Russell puts it nicely in his essay, In Praise of Idleness. What is work? Work is of two kinds. First, altering the position of matter at or near the Earth's surface relatively to other such matter. Second, telling other people to do so. The first kind is unpleasant and ill-paid. The second is pleasant and highly paid. Consider a coffee cup. We produce it once. We wash it a thousand times. Even work we think of as productive, 
growing potatoes, forging a shovel, assembling a computer, could just as easily be seen as tending, transforming, reshaping, and rearranging materials and elements that already exist. This is why I would insist our concept of production and our assumption that work is defined by its productivity is essentially theological. The Judeo-Christian God created the universe out of nothing. This in itself is slightly unusual. Most gods work with existing materials. His latter-day worshippers and their descendants have come to think of themselves as cursed to imitate God in this regard. The sleight of hand involved, the way that most human labor, which cannot in any sense be considered production, is thus made to disappear, is largely affected through gender. In the familiar lines from the story of the fall, from the book of Genesis, God condemns men to till the soil. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food and women to bear children in similarly unhappy circumstances. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Genesis 3.16 Hannah Arendt, in The Human Condition, makes the argument that nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that work itself is punishment for disobedience. God simply makes the labor more harsh. Others are simply reading Genesis through Hesiod. This might be true, but it doesn't really affect my argument, especially since Christians writing and thinking on the subject have assumed that was the meaning of the biblical passage for centuries. For instance, in 1664, Margaret Cavendish argued, Neither can tennis be a pastime, for there can be no recreation in sweaty labor, for it is laid as a curse upon man that they shall live by the sweat of their brows. For the best discussion of the early Christian debates on Adam and Eve, which argues that it was St. Augustine who was really responsible for the notion that all humans are tainted and hence cursed because of original sin, see Pagels 1988. Male productive labor is thus being framed here as the equivalent of childbirth, which from a male point of view, not so much from a female one, but it is very much a male point of view being presented here, can seem about as close to pure creation ex nihilio, the infant appearing fully formed apparently out of nowhere, that human beings can perform. Yet it is also painful labor. This conception is still with us, for instance, in the way social scientists speak of production and reproduction. Etymologically, the English verb produce derives from the Latin producere, to bring forth, or put out, as one might still say, she produced a wallet from her handbag. Both the words production and reproduction are based on the same core metaphor. In the one case, objects seem to jump fully formed out of factories. In the other, babies seem to jump fully formed out of women's bodies. In neither case, of course, is this actually true, but as in so many patriarchal social orders, Men like to conceive of themselves as doing socially or culturally what they like to think of women as doing naturally. Production is thus simultaneously a variation on a male fantasy of childbirth and of the action of a male creator god who similarly created the entire universe through the sheer power of his mind and words, just as men see themselves as creating the world from their minds and brawn and see that as the essence of work leaving to women most of the actual labor of tidying and maintaining things to make this illusion possible. 
on the origins of the Northern European notion of paid labor as necessary to the full formation of an adult human being. It's essential to emphasize the theological origins of this sort of thought. Most of the core assumptions of modern economics originally trace back to theological arguments. For instance, St. Augustine's argument that we are cursed with infinite desires in a finite world and thus naturally in a situation of competition with one another, which reappears in secular form in the 17th century in Thomas Hobbes, has become the basis for the assumption that rational human action is largely a matter of economizing the optimal allocation of scarce resources by rational actors in a competitive world. Of course, in the European Middle Ages, when economic matters fell under the jurisdiction of church law, no one really pretended these questions were not theological. Still, that period introduced a further element, not explicitly theological, the importance of which for later conceptions of labor can hardly be overstated. This is the notion of service. It is very much a Northern European idea. Much of the next section is a summary of an earlier essay of mine, Manners, Deference, and Private Property, 1997, itself an abbreviated version of my master's thesis, The Generalization of Avoidance, Manners, and Possessive Individualism in Early Modern Europe, Chicago, 1987. Some of the classic works on traditional Northern European marriage patterns and life cycle service include Hajnal, 1965-1982, Laslett, 1972-77-83-84, Stone, 1977, Kazmal, 1981, and Wall, 1983. For a more recent survey of the state of the literature, see Cooper, 2005. The primary difference between Northern European and Mediterranean marriage patterns from the Middle Ages through the early modern period is that in the latter, while men also would often marry late, women married much earlier, and life cycle service was limited to certain social and professional groups, but in no sense a norm. In theory, feudal society was a vast system of service. Not only serfs, but also lower-ranking feudal lords served higher ones just as higher ones provided feudal service to the king. However, the form of service that had the most important and persuasive influence on most people's lives was not feudal service, but what historical sociologists have called life cycle service. Essentially, almost everyone was expected to spend roughly the first 7 to 15 years of his or her working life as a servant in someone else's household. Most of us are familiar with how this worked itself out within craft guilds, where teenagers would first be assigned to master craftsmen as apprentices and then become journeymen, but only when they achieved the status of master craftsmen would they have the means to marry and set up their own households and shops and take apprentices of their own. In fact, the system was in no sense limited to artisans. Even peasants normally expected to spend their teenage years onward as servants in husbandry, in another farm household, typically that of someone just slightly better off. Service was expected equally of girls and boys. That's what milkmaids were, daughters of peasants during their years of service, and was usually expected even of the elite. The most familiar example here would be pages, who were apprentice knights, but even noble women, unless they were at the very top of the hierarchy, were expected to spend their adolescence as ladies-in-waiting, that is, 
servants who would wait upon a married noblewoman of slightly higher rank, attending to her privy chamber, toilette, meals, and so forth, even as they were also waiting for such time as they too were in a position to marry and become the lady of an aristocratic household themselves. Royal court similarly had gentlemen waiters who attended to the privy chamber of the king. Nowadays, of course, the word waiter is used only for those who wait tables at restaurants, a mainstay of the service economy, but the term was still being used primarily for domestic servants, ranking one step below the butler in Victorian households. The word dumbwaiter, for example, originally referred to the fact that servants who brought food to the master's table would often gossip about what they overheard people saying around it. Mechanical dumbwaiters performed the same function but could not speak. In the case of young nobles, waiting largely meant waiting for an inheritance, or for one's parents to decide one was old and sufficiently well-groomed to merit a transfer of title and property. This might be the case for servants in husbandry as well, but generally speaking, among commoners, servants were paid and expected to save a good share of their wages. So they were acquiring both the knowledge and experience needed to manage a household, shop, or farm, and also the wealth needed to acquire one, or, in the case of women, to be able to offer a dowry to a suitor able to do the same. As a result, medieval people married late, usually around 30, which meant that youth, adolescence, a time when one was expected to be at least a little wild, lustful, and rebellious, would often last a good 15 to 20 years. The fact that servants were paid is crucial because it meant that while wage labor did exist in Northern Europe, centuries before the dawn of capitalism, almost everyone in the Middle Ages assumed that it was something respectable people engaged in only in the first phase of their working life. Service and wage labor were largely identified. Even in Oliver Cromwell's time, day laborers could still be referred to as servants. Service, in turn, was seen above all as the process whereby young people learned not only their trade, but the manners, the comportment appropriate to a responsible adult. As one oft-quoted account by a Venetian visitor to England put it around 1500, the want of affection in the English is strongly manifested toward their children. For after having kept them at home till they arrive at the age of seven or nine years at the utmost, they put them out, both males and females, to hard service in the households of other people, binding them generally for seven to nine years. This is inaccurate. Most were apprenticed in early adolescence. And these are called apprentices. And during that time, they perform all the most menial offices, and few are born who are exempted from this fate, for everyone, however rich he may be, sends away his children into the houses of others, whilst he, in return, receives those of strangers into his own. And on inquiring their reason for this severity, they answered that they did it in order that their children learn better manners. I have quoted it myself in the manners paper. The translation goes back to Charlotte A. Sneed, a relation, or rather a true account of the island of England, with sundry particulars of the customs of these people, and the royal revenues under King Henry Seventh about the year 1500 by an Italian. Manners, in the medieval and early modern sense, went well beyond etiquette. The term referred to one's manner of acting and being in the world more generally, 
one's habits, tastes, and sensibilities. Young people were expected to work for wages in the households of others because, unless one was intending to join the clergy and become a scholar, what we would consider paid work and what we would consider education were seen as largely the same thing, and both were a process of learning self-discipline, about achieving mastery of one's baser desires and learning how to behave like a proper self-contained adult. This is not to say that medieval and early modern culture had no place for the rambunctiousness of youth. To the contrary, young people, even though in service in others' households, typically also created an alternative culture of their own, centered on youth lodges with names such as the Lords of Misrule and Abbots of Unreason, which sometimes were even allowed to take temporary power during the popular festivals. Yet, ultimately, disciplined work under the direction of an adult head of a household was to transform the young into self-disciplined adults, at which point they would no longer have to work for others, but would be self-employed. As a result of such arrangements, attitudes toward work in medieval northern Europe look quite different from those that prevailed in the classical world, or, even as we've seen, the later Mediterranean. The Venetian ambassador was scandalized by English practices. Most of our sources from Greek and Roman antiquity are male aristocrats who saw physical labor or service as fit only for women or slaves. Work, Aristotle insisted, in no sense makes you a better person. In fact, it makes you a worse one, since it takes up so much time, thus making it difficult to fulfill one's social and political obligations. As a result, the punishment aspect of work tended to be emphasized in classical literature, while the creative and godlike aspect was largely seen as falling to those male heads of household, rich enough that they didn't actually have to get their hands dirty, but could tell others what to do. In Northern Europe in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, almost everyone was expected to get their hands dirty at some point or another. In Renaissance England, for example, one frequent representative of the king was a noble servant entitled the Groom of the Stool, because he was in charge of emptying the king's chamber pot. As a result, work, especially paid work, was seen as transformative. This is important because it means that certain key aspects of what was to become known as the Protestant work ethic were already there, long before the emergence of Protestantism. How, with the advent of capitalism, work came to be seen in many quarters either as a means of social reform or ultimately as a virtue in its own right, and how labors countered by embracing the labor theory of value. No adequate history of the meanings of work has been written. C. Wright Mills, White Collar, The American Middle Classes, 1951. All this was to change with the advent of capitalism. By capitalism, here I am referring not to markets, these had long existed, but to the gradual transformation of relations of service into permanent relations of wage labor. That is, a relation between some people who owned capital and others who did not, and thus were obliged to work for them. What this meant in human terms was, first of all, that millions of young people found themselves trapped in permanent social adolescence. As the guild structures broke down, apprentices could become journeymen, but journeymen could no longer become masters, which meant that, in traditional terms, they would not be in a position to marry and start families of their own. 
they were expected to live their entire lives effectively as unfinished human beings. My father, for example, was for most of his life a plate stripper in offset photo lithography shops. At one point, while first learning my medieval history, I was telling him about the guild system. Yes, he said, I served an apprenticeship too. I retired as a journeyman printer. When I asked if there were any master printers, he said, No, we don't have masters anymore. Well, unless you want to say that's the boss. Inevitably, many began to rebel, give up on the interminable waiting, and began marrying early, abandoning their masters to set up cottages and families of their own, which in turn set off a wave of moral panic among the emerging employing class very reminiscent of later moral panics about teenage pregnancy. The following is from The Anatomy of Abuses, a 16th century manifesto by a Puritan named Philip Stubbs. And besides this, you shall have every saucy boy of 10, 14, 16, or 20 years of age catch up a woman and marry her without any fear of God at all, or, which is more, without any respect how they may live together with sufficient maintenance for their callings and estate. No, no, it maketh no matter for these things, so he have his pretty pussy to huggle withal, for that is the only thing he desireth. Then build they up a cottage, though but of elder poles in every lane end almost, where they live as beggars all their life after. This filleth the land with such store of mendicants that in short time it is like to grow to great poverty and scarceness. This line of objection, of course, reached its peak with Malthus, who came to argue that the working classes would thus tend to breed everyone into poverty and famously advocated fostering unsanitary conditions to kill them off. Kazanov, who is cited later, was a disciple of Malthus. It was at this moment that one can speak of the birth of the proletariat as a class, a term derived appropriately enough from a Latin word for those who produce offspring, since in Rome, the poor citizens who did not have enough wealth to tax were useful to the government only by producing sons who could be drafted into the army. Stubbs' Anatomy of Abuses might be considered the very manifesto of the Puritan Reformation of Manners, as they called it, which was very much a middle-class vision, with an equally jaundiced view of both the carnality of court life and the heathenish rioting of popular entertainment. It also shows it's impossible to understand debates about Puritanism and the origins of the Protestant work ethic without understanding this larger context of the decline of life cycle service and creation of a proletariat. English Calvinists, actually they were only called Puritans by those who disliked them, tended to be drawn from the class of master craftsmen and improving farmers who were employing this newly created proletariat, and their reformation of manners took special aim at popular festivals, gaming, drinking, and all the annual rites of misrule when youth temporarily inverted the social order. The Puritan ideal was for all such masterless men to be rounded up and placed under the stern discipline of a pious household whose patriarch could direct them in work and prayer. But this was just the first of a long history of attempts to reform the manners of the lower classes that has followed, from Victorian workhouses, where the poor were taught proper time discipline, to workfare and similar government programs today. Why, starting in the 16th century, 
Did the middle classes suddenly develop such an interest in reforming the moral comportment of the poor, a subject they had not previously found of much interest one way or the other? This has always been something of a historical mystery. In the context of life cycle service, though, it actually makes perfect sense. The poor were seen as frustrated adolescents. Work, and specifically paid labor under the eye of a master, had traditionally been the means by which such adolescents learned how to be proper, disciplined, self-contained adults. While in practical terms, Puritans and other pious reformers could no longer promise much to the poor, certainly not adulthood as it used to be conceived, as freedom from the need to work under the orders of others, they substituted charity, discipline, and a renewed infusion of theology. Work, they taught, was both punishment and redemption. Work was self-mortification and as such had value in itself, even beyond the wealth it produced, which was merely a sign of God's favor, and not to be enjoyed too much. Max Weber's 1905 arguments about the relation of Calvinism and the origins of capitalism, I believe, should be understood in this light. That there was some connection between Protestantism, an ethic of self-disciplined work, and economic growth was considered self-evident by many of the time, but few examined the confluence of the three factors. Northern European life cycle service, Protestantism, and emerging capitalism even though they appear to broadly coincide. After the Industrial Revolution, the celebration of work was taken up with renewed vigor by the Methodists, but even more, if anything, in educated middle-class circles that didn't see themselves as particularly religious. Perhaps its greatest advocate was Thomas Carlyle, an enormously popular essayist who, concerned with the decline of morality in the new age of mammon, proposed what he called a gospel of work. Carlyle insisted that labor should not be viewed as a way to satisfy material needs, but as the essence of life itself. God had intentionally created the world unfinished, so as to allow humans the opportunity to complete his work through labor. A man perfects himself by working. Consider how, even in the meanest sorts of labor, the whole soul of man is composed into a kind of real harmony, the instant he sets himself to work. Doubt, desire, sorrow, remorse, indignation, despair itself, all these like hell dogs lie beleaguering the soul of the poor day worker, as of every man. But he bends himself with free valor against his task, and all these are stilled, all these shrink murmuring far off into their caves. The man is now a man. The blessed glow of labor in him, is it not purifying fire, wherein all poison is burnt up. All true work is sacred. In all true work, were it but true hand labor, there is something of divineness. O oh brother, if this is not worship, then I say, the more the pity for worship, for this is the noblest thing yet discovered under God's sky. Who art thou that complainest of thy life of toil? Complain not. Look up, my wearied brother, See thy fellow workmen there in God's eternity, sacred band of the immortals, celestial bodyguard of the empire of mankind. Thomas Carlyle, Past and Present It is interesting to contrast Carlyle's praise for work for freeing the soul from cares to Nietzsche, who condemned it for that very reason. 
In the glorification of work and the never-ceasing talk about the blessing of labor, I see fear of everything individual. For at the sight of work, that is to say, severe toil from morning till night, we have the feeling that it is the best police, that it holds everyone in check and effectively hinders the development of reason, of greed, and of desire for independence. For work uses up an extraordinary proportion of nervous force, withdrawing it from reflection, meditation, dreams, cares, love, and hatred. One wonders if this is a direct response to Carlyle. Carlyle was ultimately led to the conclusion so many reach today, that if work is noble, then the most noble work should not be compensated, since it is obscene to put a price on something of such absolute value. The wages of every noble work do yet lie in heaven or else nowhere, though he was generous enough to allow that the poor did need to be afforded fair wages in order to obtain the means to live. Much of the essay is a condemnation of capitalism as mammonism, and like so many 19th century works, sounds vaguely Marxist to the modern ear, even when it comes to conservative conclusions. Labor is not a devil, even while encased in mammonism. Labor is ever an imprisoned god, writhing unconsciously or consciously to escape out of mammonism. Such arguments were immensely popular in middle-class circles. Unsurprisingly, the workers' movement beginning to form in Europe around Carlyle's time was less impressed. Most workers involved in Luddism, Chartism, Ricardian socialism, and the various early strains of English radicalism would probably have agreed there was something divine in work, but that divine quality lay not in its effect on the soul and body, as laborers they knew better than that, but that it was the source of wealth. Everything that made rich and powerful people rich and powerful was in fact created by the efforts of the poor. Adam Smith and David Ricardo, the founders of British economic science, had embraced the labor theory of value, as did many of the new industrialists since it allowed them to distinguish themselves from the landed gentry, whom they represented as mere idle consumers. But the theory was almost instantly taken up by socialists and labor organizers and turned against the industrialists themselves. Before long, economists began seeking for alternatives on explicitly political grounds. Already in 1832, that is, 35 years before the appearance of Marx's capital, we encounter warnings like the following. That labor is the sole source of wealth seems to be a doctrine as dangerous as it is false, as it unhappily affords a handle to those who would represent all property as belonging to the working classes, and the share which is received by others as a robbery or fraud upon them. John Kasnov, in Outlines of Political Economy, being a plain and short view of the laws relating to the production, distribution, and consumption of wealth. As far as I know, the first use of the labor theory of value to argue that workers are exploited by their employers is found in a pamphlet called The Rights of Nature Against the Usurpations of Establishments, written by the British Jacobin John Thelwall in 1796. By the 1830s, many were, in fact, proclaiming exactly that. It is important to emphasize just how universally accepted the labor theory of value became in the generations immediately following the Industrial Revolution. 
even before the dissemination of Marx's works, which gave such arguments a renewed energy and a more sophisticated theoretical language. It was particularly powerful in Britain's American colonies. The mechanics and tradesmen who became the foot soldiers of the American War of Independence represented themselves as producers of the wealth that they saw the British crown as looting. And after the revolution, many turned the same language against would-be capitalists. The solid rock on which their idea of the good society rested, as one historian put it, was that labor created all wealth. From Edward Pezen, Most Uncommon Jacksonians, the radical leaders of the early labor movement. Failure study of the town of Lynn in Massachusetts from 1780 to 1860 documents at length the degree to which the labor theory of value formed the framework of public debate for almost a century after the revolution. The word capitalist at that time was largely a term of abuse. When U.S. President Abraham Lincoln delivered his first annual message to Congress in 1861, for instance, he included the following lines, which, radical though they seemed to a contemporary ear, were really just a reflection of the common sense of the time. Marx's own works, for example, were little known in the U.S. at the time, though not completely unknown, since Marx himself was working as a freelance newspaper opinion writer and would often publish columns in U.S. papers. Marx, in his capacity as head of the Working Men's Association, also wrote directly to Lincoln with his own analysis of the American situation a few years later, in 1865, and while Lincoln seems to have read the letter, he had one of his adjuncts respond. Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is the superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration. Still, Lincoln went on to insist, what made the United States different from Europe, indeed what made its democracy possible, was that it lacked a permanent population of wage laborers. There is not of necessity any such thing as the free hired laborer being fixed to that condition for life. Many independent men everywhere in these states a few years back in their lives were hired laborers. The prudent, penniless beginner in the world labors for wages a while, saves a surplus with which to buy tools or land for himself, then labors on his own account another while, and at length hires another new beginner to help him. In other words, even though he didn't put it quite this way, Lincoln argued that, owing to America's rapid economic and territorial expansion, it was possible there to maintain something like the old medieval system, in which everyone started out working for others, then used the proceeds of wage labor to set up shop or buy a farm on land seized from its indigenous inhabitants, and then eventually themselves play the capitalist, employing young people as laborers in their own right. This was definitely the ideal in pre-Civil War America, though Lincoln was from Illinois, not too far from the frontier. Working men's associations in the old cities of the eastern seaboard were already taking issue with arguments like this. Already in 1845, New York State Assemblyman Mike Walsh was arguing along explicitly anti-capitalist lines. What is capital but that all-grasping power which has been wrung by fraud avarice, and malice from the labor of this and all ages past. What's significant here 
is that Lincoln felt he had to accept the labor theory of value as the framework of debate. Everyone did. This remained the case at least until the end of the century. It was true even along the western frontier, where one might have imagined European-style class tensions were least likely to flare up. In 1880, a Protestant home missionary who had spent some years traveling along the western frontier reported that you can hardly find a group of ranchmen or miners from Colorado to the Pacific who will not have on their tongue's end the labor slang of Dennis Kearney, the infidel ribaldry of atheist pamphleteer Robert Ingersoll, the socialistic theories of Karl Marx. E.P. Goodwin, in Home Missionary Sermon, 1880, in Josiah Strong, Our Country, Its Possible Future, and Its Present Crisis, 1891. Dennis Kearney was a California labor leader of the time, now remembered largely for his campaigning against Chinese immigration, and Robert Ingersoll, the author of well-known refutations of the Bible, is now mainly known secondhand through Clarence Darrow's arguments against the literal interpretation of Genesis in the play Inherit the Wind, which appear to be taken directly from Ingersoll's writings. I can add a personal testimony here. My own grandfather, Gustavus Adolphus Dolly Graber, who, owing to my family's peculiarly long generations, was born before the U.S. Civil War and worked as a musician for many years along the western frontier at exactly the time Goodwin was writing. He is reputed to be the man who introduced the mandolin into American music. Was, my father once told me, an Ingersoll man, and hence a fervent atheist. He was never a Marxist, but my father became one later. Certainly a detail left out of every cowboy movie I ever saw. The notable exception being The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which does indeed begin with a scene where John Houston, as a miner, explains the labor theory of value to Humphrey Bogart. The movie Treasure of the Sierra Madre is based on a novel of the same name by B. Traven, the pseudonym for a German anarchist novelist who fled his own country and lived most of the years of his life in southern Mexico. His real identity remains the object of speculation to this day. Concerning the key flaw in the labor theory of value as it became popular in the 19th century and how the owners of capital exploited that flaw. Virtually any form of labor can be described as caring in the sense that it results in activities that help meet the needs of others. Nancy Fulber I turn to America for a reason. The United States plays a key role in our story. Nowhere was the principle that all wealth derives from labor more universally accepted as ordinary common sense, yet nowhere, too, was the counterattack against this common sense so calculated, so sustained, and so ultimately effective. By the early decades of the 20th century, when the first cowboy movies were being made, this work was largely complete, and the idea that ranch hands had once been avid readers of Marx would have seemed as ridiculous as it would to most Americans today. Even more important, this counteroffensive laid the groundwork for the apparently bizarre attitudes toward work, largely emanating from North America, that we can still observe spreading across the world, with pernicious results. Lincoln was no doubt overstating his case, but it is nonetheless true that in the artisan's republic that existed before the Civil War, something roughly like the older tradition of life-cycle service did endure. 
with the notable difference that most hired laborers were not called servants and did not live in their employers' homes. Politicians did see this as the ideal and legislated accordingly. Would-be capitalists were not granted the right to create limited liability corporations unless they could prove doing so would constitute a clear and incontestable public benefit. In other words, the notion of social value not only existed but was inscribed in law. This usually meant in practice only if they were proposing to dig a canal or build a railroad. Thus, for instance, when in 1837 the group of businessmen from Amherst, Massachusetts, proposed to create a limited liability carriage company, the proposal was opposed by a petition by journeymen on the grounds that, as journeymen, they looked forward to being their own masters when they would not have to relinquish to others the value they created, stating, Incorporations put means into the hands of inexperienced capitalists to take from us the profits of our art, which has cost us years of labor to obtain, and which we consider to be our exclusive privilege to enjoy. Ordinarily, such requests were only approved if the company was dedicated to creating and maintaining public works of an obviously useful nature, such as a railroad or canal. Apart from the atheists along the frontier, much of this anti-capitalist feeling was justified on religious grounds. Popular Protestantism, drawing on its Puritan roots, not only celebrated work, but embraced the belief that, as my fellow anthropologists Dimitra Dukas and Paul Durenberger have put it, work was a sacred duty and a claim of moral and political superiority over the idle rich. A more explicitly religious version of Carlyle's Gospel of Work, most historians simply call it producerism, which insisted that work was both a value in itself and the only real producer of value. In the immediate wake of the Civil War, all this began to change with the first stirrings of large-scale bureaucratic corporate capitalism. The robber barons, as the new tycoons came to be called, were at first met, as the name given them implies, with extraordinary hostility. But by the 1890s, they embarked on an intellectual counteroffensive, proposing what Dukas and Durenberger call, after an essay by Andrew Carnegie, a gospel of wealth. The fledgling corporate giants, their bankers and their political allies, objected to producerist moral claims and, starting in the 1890s, reached out with a new ideology that claimed, to the contrary, that capital, not labor, creates wealth and prosperity. Powerful coalitions of corporate interests made concerted efforts to transform the message of schools, universities, churches, and civic groups, claiming that business had solved the fundamental ethical and political problems of industrial society. Steel magnate Andrew Carnegie was a leader of this cultural campaign. To the masses, Carnegie argued for what we'd now call consumerism, the productivity of concentrated capital under the wise stewardship of the fit would so lower the price of commodities that the workers of tomorrow would live as well as the kings of the past. To the elite, he argued that coddling the poor with high wages was not good for the race. The promulgation of consumerism also coincided with the beginnings of the managerial revolution, which was, especially at first, largely an attack on popular knowledge. Where once hoopers and wainwrights and seamstresses saw themselves as heirs to a proud tradition, 
each with its secret knowledge, the new bureaucratically organized corporations and their scientific management sought as far as possible to literally turn workers into extensions of the machinery, their every move predetermined by someone else. The real question to be asked here, it seems to me, is why was this campaign so successful? Because it cannot be denied that within a generation, producerism had given way to consumerism. The source of status, as Harry Braverman put it, was no longer the ability to make things, but simply the ability to purchase them. And the labor theory of value, which had meanwhile been knocked out of economic theory by the marginal revolution, had so fallen away from popular common sense that nowadays only graduate students or small circles of revolutionary Marxist theorists are likely to have heard of it. Nowadays, if one speaks of wealth producers, people will automatically assume one is referring not to workers, but to capitalists. This was a monumental shift in popular consciousness. What made it possible? It seems to me that the main reason lies in a flaw in the original labor theory of value itself. This was its focus on production, a concept which, as earlier noted, is basically theological and bears in it a profound patriarchal bias. Even in the Middle Ages, the Christian God was seen as a craftsman and an artificer, and human work, which was always conceived primarily as male work, as a matter of making and building things, or perhaps coaxing them from the soil, while for women, labor was seen primarily and emblematically as a matter of producing babies. There is some debate over the relative weight, in medieval Christian theology, of the degree to which work was seen as an imitation of divine creation and as a means of perfecting the self, but both principles appear to have been present from the very beginning. Most real women's labor disappeared from the conversation. Obviously, the startling, unprecedented increases in productivity that followed in the wake of the Industrial Revolution played a role here, too. They could only have led to arguments about the relative importance of machines and the people operating them, and, indeed, those arguments remained at the center of political and economic debate throughout the 19th century. But even when it comes to factory labor, there is something of a darker story. The initial instinct of most early factory owners was not to employ men in the mills at all, but women and children. The latter were, after all, considered more tractable, and women especially more inured to monotonous, repetitive work. The results were often brutal and horrific. The situation also left traditional male craftsmen in a particularly distressing situation. Not only were they thrown out of work by the new factories, their wives and children, who used to work under their direction, were now the breadwinners. This was clearly a factor in the early wave of machine-breaking during the Napoleonic Wars that came to be known as Luddism, and a key element in allaying that rebellion seems to have been a tacit social compromise whereby it came to be understood that it would be primarily adult men who would be employed in factory work. This, and the fact that for the next century or so, labor organizing tended to focus on factory workers, partly simply because they were the easiest to organize, led to the situation we have now, where simply invoking the term working class instantly draws up images of men in overalls toiling on production lines, 
and it's common to hear otherwise intelligent middle-class intellectuals suggest that, with the decline of factory work, the working class in, say, Britain or America no longer exists. As if it were actually ingeniously constructed androids that were driving their buses, trimming their hedges, installing their cables, or changing their grandparents' bedpans. In fact, there was never a time most workers worked in factories. Even in the days of Karl Marx or Charles Dickens, working-class neighborhoods housed far more maids, bootblacks, dustmen, cooks, nurses, cabbies, school teachers, prostitutes, caretakers, and costermongers than employees in coal mines, textile mills, or iron foundries. Are these former jobs productive? In what sense and for whom? Who produces a souffle? It's because of these ambiguities that such issues are typically brushed aside when people are arguing about value. But doing so blinds us to the reality that most working-class labor, whether carried out by men or women, actually more resembles what we archetypically think of as women's work, looking after people, seeing to their wants and needs, explaining, reassuring, anticipating what the boss wants or is thinking not to mention caring for, monitoring, and maintaining plants, animals, machines, and other objects, than it involves hammering, carving, hoisting, or harvesting things. This blindness has consequences. Let me give an illustration. In 2014, there was a transit strike when London's mayor threatened to close perhaps a 100 London underground ticket offices, leaving only machines. This sparked an online debate among certain local Marxists about whether the workers threatened with redundancy had bullshit jobs. The logic put forward by some being that either a job produced value for capitalism, which the capitalists clearly no longer thought these jobs did, or else it served a social function that would be necessary even if capitalism did not exist, which clearly these did not since under full communism, transport would be free. Needless to say, I was drawn in. As to respond, I eventually referred my interlocutors to a circular put out by the strikers themselves, called Advice to Passengers Using the Future London Underground. It included lines like these. Please ensure you are thoroughly familiar with London Underground's 11 lines and 270 stations before traveling. Please ensure that there are no delays in your journey, or any accidents, emergencies, incidents, or evacuations. Please do not be disabled, or poor, or new to London. Please avoid being too young or too old. Please do not be harassed or assaulted while traveling. Please do not lose your property or your children. Please do not require assistance in any way. It apparently never having occurred to many advocates of proletarian revolution to investigate what it is that transit workers actually did they appear to have lapsed into something very like the right-wing tabloid stereotype of city employees as overpaid idlers lounging about on the public dime. What tube workers actually do, then, is something much closer to what feminists have termed caring labor. It has more in common with a nurse's work than a bricklayer's. It's just that, in the same way as women's unpaid caring labor is made to disappear from our accounts of the economy, so are the caring aspects of other working-class jobs made to disappear as well. One might make a case, perhaps, that British working-class traditions of caring labor do make themselves known in popular culture, which is largely a working-class product, 
with all the characteristic gestures, manners, and cadences by which working-class people cheer one another up, reflected in British music, British comedy, and British children's literature. But it is not recognized as value-creating labor in itself. Caring labor is generally seen as work directed at other people, and it always involves a certain labor of interpretation, empathy, and understanding. To some degree, one might argue that this is not really work at all. It's just life, or life lived properly. Humans are naturally empathetic creatures, and to communicate with one another at all, we must constantly cast ourselves imaginatively into each other's shoes and try to understand what others are thinking and feeling, which usually means caring about them at least a little, but it very much becomes work when all the empathy and imaginative identification is on one side. The key to caring labor as a commodity is not that some people care but that others don't, that those paying for services, note how the old feudal term is still retained, feel no need to engage in interpretive labor themselves. This is even true of a bricklayer if that bricklayer is working for someone else. Underlings have to constantly monitor what the boss is thinking. The boss doesn't have to care. That, in turn, is one reason I believe why psychological studies regularly find that people of working-class background are more accurate at reading other people's feelings and more empathetic and caring than those of middle-class, let alone wealthy, backgrounds. To some degree, the skill at reading others' emotions is just an effect of what working-class work actually consists of. Rich people don't have to learn how to do interpretive labor nearly as well because they can hire other people to do it for them. Those hirelings, on the other hand, who have to develop a habit of understanding others' points of view will also tend to care about them. As a result, underlings will also tend to care more about their superiors than their superiors will care about them, and this extends to almost any relation of structural inequality. Men and women, rich and poor, black and white, and so on. It has always seemed to me this is one of the main forces that allows such inequalities to continue. I've discussed this in various places, but the curious listener might consult the second chapter of Graeber, Utopia of Rules. By this token, as many feminist economists have pointed out, all labor can be seen as caring labor, since, to turn to an example from the beginning of the chapter, even if one builds a bridge, it's ultimately because one cares about people who might wish to cross the river. As the examples I cited at the time make clear, people do really think in these terms when they reflect on the social value of their jobs. From this perspective, for instance, money, markets, finance are just ways of strangers alerting us to what they care about, because we care that caring is directed appropriately, which implies in turn that contemporary banking is simply a bad form of caring labor insofar as it aims it in the wrong direction. To think of labor as valuable primarily because it is productive and productive labor as typified by the factory worker, affecting that magic transformation by which cars or tea bags or pharmaceutical products are produced out of factories through the same painful but ultimately mysterious labor by which women are seen to produce babies, allows one to make all this disappear. It also makes it maximally easy for the factory owner to insist that no, actually, workers are really no different from the machines they operate. Clearly, the growth of what came to be called 
scientific management made this easier. But it would never have been possible had the paradigmatic example of worker in the popular imagination been a cook, a gardener, or a masseuse. Most economists nowadays see the labor theory of value as a curiosity from the formative days of the discipline. And it's probably true that, if one's primary interest is to understand patterns of price formation, there are better tools available. But for the workers' movement, and arguably for revolutionaries like Karl Marx, that was never the real point. The real point is philosophical. It is a recognition that the world we inhabit is something we made, collectively, as a society, and therefore that we could also have made differently. This is true of almost any physical object likely to be within reach of us at any given moment. Every one was grown or manufactured by someone on the basis of what someone imagined we might be like and what they thought we might want or need. It's even more true of abstractions like capitalism, society, or the government. They only exist because we produce them every day. John Holloway, perhaps the most poetic of contemporary Marxists, once proposed to write a book entitled Stop Making Capitalism. The book was eventually renamed Crack Capitalism 2010, which I've always felt was a far inferior title. After all, he noted even though we all act as if capitalism is some kind of behemoth towering over us, it's really just something we produce. Every morning, we wake up and recreate capitalism. If one morning we woke up and all decided to create something else, then there wouldn't be capitalism anymore. There would be something else. One might even say that this is the core question, perhaps ultimately the only question, of all social theory and all revolutionary thought. Together, we create the world we inhabit. Yet if any one of us tried to imagine a world we'd like to live in, who would come up with one exactly like the one that currently exists? We can all imagine a better world. Why can't we just create one? Why does it seem so inconceivable to just stop making capitalism? Or government? Or at the very least, bad service providers and annoying bureaucratic red tape? Viewing work as production allows us to ask such questions. This couldn't be more important. It's not clear, however, if it gives us the means to answer them. It strikes me that recognizing that a great deal of work is not strictly speaking productive, but caring, and that there is always a caring aspect even to the most apparently impersonal work, does suggest one reason why it's so difficult to simply create a different society with a different set of rules. Even if we don't like what the world looks like, the fact remains that the conscious aim of most of our actions, productive or otherwise, is to do well by others, often very specific others. Our actions are caught up in relations of caring. But most caring relations require we leave the world more or less as we found it. In the same way that teenage idealists regularly abandon their dreams of creating a better world and come to accept the compromises of adult life at precisely the moment they marry and have children, caring for others, especially over the long term, requires maintaining a world that's relatively predictable as the grounds on which caring can take place. One cannot save to ensure a college education for one's children unless one is sure in 20 years there will still be colleges, or, for that matter, money. 
and that in turn means that love for others, people, animals, landscapes, regularly requires the maintenance of institutional structures one might otherwise despise. How, over the course of the 20th century, work came to be increasingly valued primarily as a form of discipline and self-sacrifice. We keep inventing jobs because of this false idea that everyone has to be employed at some sort of drudgery because, according to Malthusian Darwinian theory, he must justify his right to exist. Buckminster Fuller However this may be, the gospel of wealth counteroffensive has been successful, and the captains of industry, first in America, then increasingly everywhere, have been able to convince the public that they, and not those they employ, are the real creators of prosperity. Their very success, however, created an inevitable problem. How are workers supposed to find meaning and purpose in jobs where they are effectively being turned into robots? Where they are actually being told they are little better than robots, even as, at the same time, they are increasingly expected to organize their lives around their work. The obvious answer is to fall back on the old idea that work forms character. And this is precisely what seems to have happened. One could call it a revival of Puritanism, but, as we've seen, this idea goes much further back. To a fusion of the Christian doctrine of the curse of Adam with the Northern European notion that paid labor under a master's discipline is the only way to become a genuine adult. This history made it very easy to encourage workers to see their work not so much as wealth creation or helping others, or at least not primarily so, but as self-abnegation, a kind of secular hair shirt, a sacrifice of joy and pleasure that allows us to become an adult worthy of our consumerist toys. A great deal of contemporary research has confirmed this assessment. True, people in Europe or America have not historically seen their avocation as what should mark them in the eyes of eternity. Visit a graveyard. You will search in vain for a tombstone inscribed with the words Steam Fitter, Executive Vice President, Park Ranger, or Clerk. In death, the essence of a soul's being on earth is seen as marked by the love they felt for and received from their husbands, wives, and children, or sometimes also by what military unit they served with in time of war. These are all things which involve both intense emotional commitment and the giving and taking of life. While alive, in contrast, the first question anyone was likely to have asked on meeting any of those people was, what do you do for a living? This continues to be the case. The fact that it does remains something of a stubborn paradox because the gospel of wealth and subsequent rise of consumerism was supposed to have changed all that. No longer were we to think of ourselves as expressing our being through what we produced, but rather through what we consumed. What sort of clothes we wear, music we listen to, sports teams we follow. Especially since the 70s, everyone has been expected to sort themselves out into tribal subcultures as sci-fi geeks, dog lovers, paintball enthusiasts, stoners, or supporters of the Chicago Bulls or Manchester United, but definitely not as longshoremen or catastrophe risk analysts. And it is true that on one level, most of us do prefer to think of ourselves as being defined by anything other than our jobs. 
One oft-quoted passage from Studs Terkel's Working. Unless a guy's a nut, he never thinks about work or talks about it. Maybe about baseball, or about getting drunk the other night, or he got laid, or he didn't get laid. I'd say one out of a hundred really get excited about work. But at the same time, from the same testimony, somebody has to do this work. If my kid ever goes to college, I just want him to have a little respect. Yet somehow, paradoxically, people regularly report that work is what gives the ultimate meaning to their lives, and that unemployment has devastating psychological effects. There have been an enormous number of surveys, studies, inquests, and ethnographies of work over the course of the 20th century. Work about work has become a kind of minor industry in its own right. The conclusions reached by this body of research, and what follows appears to hold true with only minor variations for both blue and white-collar workers virtually anywhere in the world, might be summarized as follows. 1. Most people's sense of dignity and self-worth is caught up in working for a living. 2. Most people hate their jobs. We might refer to this as the paradox of modern work. The entire discipline of the sociology of work, not to mention industrial relations, has largely been concerned with trying to understand how both these things can be true at the same time. As two paragons of the field, Al Gini and Terry Sullivan put it in 1987, in well over a hundred studies in the last 25 years, workers have regularly depicted their jobs as physically exhausting, boring, psychologically diminishing, or personally humiliating and unimportant. But at the same time, they want to work because they are aware at some level that work plays a crucial and perhaps unparalleled psychological role in the formation of human character. Work is not just a course of livelihood. It is also one of the most significant contributing factors to an inner life. To be denied work is to be denied far more than the things that work can buy. It is to be denied the ability to define and respect oneself. After many years of research on the topic, Jeannie finally came to the conclusion that work was coming to be considered less and less a means to an end, that is, a way of obtaining resources and experiences that make it possible to pursue projects, as I've put it, values other than the economic, family, politics, community, culture, religion, and more and more as an end in itself. Yet at the same time, it was an end in itself that most people found harmful, degrading, and oppressive. How to reconcile these two observations? One way might be to return to the arguments I made in Chapter 3 and to acknowledge that human beings essentially are a set of purposes, so that without any sense of purpose, we would barely be said to exist at all. There is surely truth in this. In some sense, we are all in the situation of the inmate who prefers working in the prison laundry to sitting in the cell watching TV all day. But one possibility the sociologists generally overlook is that if work is a form of self-sacrifice or self-abnegation, then the very awfulness of modern work is what makes it possible to see it as an end in itself. We have returned to Carlyle. Work should be painful. The misery of the job is itself what forms character. Workers, in other words, gain feelings of dignity and self-worth 
because they hate their jobs. This is the attitude that, as Clement observed, seems to remain in the air all around us, implicit in office small talk. The pressure to value ourselves and others on the basis of how hard we work at something we'd rather not be doing. If you're not destroying your mind and body via paid work, you're not living right. It is, to be sure, more common among middle-class office workers like Clement than among migrant farm workers, parking lot attendants, or short-order chefs. But even in working-class environments, the attitude can be observed through its negation, since even those who do not feel they have to validate their existence, on a day-to-day basis, by boasting how overworked they are, will nonetheless agree that those who avoid work entirely should probably drop dead. In America, stereotypes of the lazy and undeserving poor have long been tied up in racism. Generations of immigrants learned what it means to be a hard-working American by being taught to despise the imagined indiscipline of the descendants of slaves, just as Japanese workers were taught to disdain Koreans or English workers Irish. Noel Ignatiev's How the Irish Became White is the classic study of this phenomenon. Nowadays, mainstream media is usually obliged to be more subtle, but there is an endless drumbeat of vilification of the poor, the unemployed, and especially those on public relief. And most people do seem to accept the basic logic of the contemporary moralists, that society is besieged by those who want something for nothing, that the poor are largely poor because they lack the will and discipline to work, that only those who do or have worked harder than they'd like to at something they would rather not be doing, preferably under a harsh taskmaster, deserve respect and consideration from their fellow citizens. As a result, the sadomasochistic element in work described in Chapter 4, rather than being an ugly, if predictable, side effect to top-down chains of command in the workplace, has actually become central to what validates work itself. Suffering has become a badge of economic citizenship. It's not that much different than a home address. Without it, you have no right to make any other claim. We have come full circle, then, to the situation with which we began. But at least now we can understand it in its full historical context. Bullshit jobs proliferate today in large part because of the peculiar nature of managerial feudalism that has come to dominate wealthy economies, but to an increasing degree, all economies. They cause misery because human happiness is always caught up in a sense of having effects on the world, a feeling which most people, when they speak of their work, express through a language of social value. Yet at the same time, they are aware that the greater the social value produced by a job, the less one is likely to be paid to do it. Like Annie, They are faced with the choice between doing useful and important work like taking care of children, but being effectively told that the gratification of helping others should be its own reward and it's up to them to figure out how to pay their bills, or accepting pointless and degrading work that destroys their mind and body for no particular reason, other than a widespread feeling that if one does not engage in labor that destroys the mind and body, whether or not there is a reason to be doing it, one does not deserve to live. Perhaps we should leave the last word to Carlyle, who includes in his celebration of work one chapter that consists entirely of a peculiar diatribe against happiness. 
Here, he was responding to the utilitarian doctrines of men like Jeremy Bentham, who had proposed that human pleasure could be precisely quantified, and therefore all morality reduced to calculating what would provide the greatest happiness for the greatest number. The formula was later reduced to the greatest good for the greatest number, but Bentham's original theory was based on hedonistic calculation, and that's what Carlyle was responding to. Happiness, Carlyle objected, is an ignoble concept. The only happiness a brave man ever troubled himself with asking much about was happiness enough to get his work done. It is, after all, the one unhappiness of a man that he cannot work, that he cannot get his destiny as man fulfilled. Bentham and the utilitarians, who saw no purpose of human life other than the pursuit of pleasure, can be seen as the philosophical ancestors of modern consumerism, which is still justified by an economic theory of utility. But Carlyle's perspective isn't really the negation of Bentham's. Or if it is, then only in the dialectical sense, where two apparent opposites remain permanently at war with one another, their advocates unaware that, in their struggle, they constitute a higher unity which would be impossible without both. The belief that what ultimately motivates human beings has always been, and must always be, the pursuit of wealth, power, comforts, and pleasure, has always and must always be complemented by a doctrine of work as self-sacrifice, as valuable precisely because it is the place of misery, sadism, emptiness, and despair. As Carlyle put it, All work, even cotton spinning, is noble. Work is alone noble, be that here said and asserted once more. And in like manner, too, all dignity is painful. A life of ease is not for any man. Our highest religion is named the worship of sorrow. For the Son of Man there is no noble crown, well-worn or even ill-worn, but there is a crown of thorns. Chapter 7 What are the political effects of bullshit jobs? And is there anything that can be done about this situation? I believe that this instinct to perpetuate useless work is, at bottom, simply fear of the mob. The mob, the thought runs, are such low animals that they would be dangerous if they had leisure. It is safer to keep them too busy to think. George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris and London if someone had designed a work regime perfectly suited to maintaining the power of finance capital, it's hard to see how they could have done a better job. Real, productive workers are relentlessly squeezed and exploited. The remainder are divided between a terrorized stratum of the universally reviled unemployed and a larger stratum who are basically paid to do nothing in positions designed to make them identify with the perspectives and sensibilities of the ruling class managers, administrators, etc., and particularly its financial avatars, but at the same time foster a simmering resentment against anyone whose work has clear and undeniable social value. From On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs I would like to end this book with a few thoughts about the political implications of the current work situation and one suggestion about a possible way out. What I have described over the last two chapters are the economic forces driving the proliferation of bullshit jobs, what I've called managerial feudalism, 
and the cosmology, the overall way of imagining the place of human beings in the universe, that allows us to put up with this arrangement. The more the economy becomes a matter of the mere distribution of loot, the more inefficiency and unnecessary chains of command actually make sense, since these are the forms of organization best suited to soaking up as much of that loot as possible. The less the value of work is seen to lie either in what it produces or the benefits it provides to others, the more work comes to be seen as valuable primarily as a form of self-sacrifice, which means that anything that makes that work less onerous or more enjoyable, even the gratification of knowing that one's work benefits others, is actually seen to lower its value and, as a result, to justify lower levels of pay. All this is genuinely perverse. In a sense, those critics who claim we are not working a 15-hour week because we have chosen consumerism over leisure are not entirely off the mark. They just got the mechanisms wrong. We're not working harder because we're spending all our time manufacturing PlayStations and serving one another sushi. Industry is being increasingly robotized, and the real service sector remains flat at roughly 20% of overall employment. Instead, it is because we have invented a bizarre sadomasochistic dialectic whereby we feel that pain in the workplace is the only possible justification for our furtive consumer pleasures, and, at the same time, the fact that our jobs thus come to eat up more and more of our waking existence means that we do not have the luxury of, as Kathy Weeks has so concisely put it, a life. And that, in turn, means that furtive consumer pleasures are the only ones we have time to afford. Sitting around in cafes all day arguing about politics or gossiping about our friends' complex polyamorous love affairs takes time. All day, in fact. In contrast, pumping iron or attending a yoga class at the local gym ordering out for Deliveroo, watching an episode of Game of Thrones, or shopping for hand creams or consumer electronics, can all be placed in the kind of self-contained, predictable time slots one is likely to have left over between spates of work, or else while recovering from it. All these are examples of what I like to call compensatory consumerism. They are the sorts of things you can do to make up for the fact that you don't have a life, or not very much of one. On how the political culture under managerial feudalism comes to be maintained by a balance of resentments. Now, at the time of which I was speaking, as the voters were inscribing their ostraca to determine which politician would be expelled from the city, it is said that an unlettered and utterly boorish fellow handed his ostrakan to Aristides, whom he took to be one of the ordinary crowd and asked him to write Aristides on it. He, astonished, asked the man what possible wrong Aristides had done him. None whatever, was the answer. I don't even know the fellow, but I am tired of hearing him everywhere called the just. On hearing this, Aristides made no answer, but wrote his name on the Ostracon and handed it back. Plutarch, Life of Aristides the Just No doubt I am overstating my case. People in consumer societies, even those in bullshit jobs, do eke out some kind of life. Though one might ask how viable such forms of life really are in the long term, considering that the stratum of the population most likely to be trapped in pointless employment 
would also appear to be the most likely to have lives marked by episodes of clinical depression or other forms of mental illness, not to mention to fail to reproduce. At least I suspect that this is the case. Such suspicions could only be affirmed by empirical research. Even if none of this turned out to be the case, though, one thing is inescapable. Such work arrangements foster a political landscape rife with hatred and resentment. Those struggling and without work resent the employed. The employed are encouraged to resent the poor and unemployed, who they are constantly told are scroungers and freeloaders. Those trapped in bullshit jobs resent workers who get to do real productive or beneficial labor. And those who do real productive or beneficial labor, underpaid, degraded, and unappreciated, increasingly resent those who they see as monopolizing those few jobs where one can live well while doing something useful, high-minded, or glamorous, who they refer to as the liberal elite. All are united in their loathing for the political class, who they see, correctly, as corrupt, but the political class, in turn, finds these other forms of vacuous hatred extremely convenient, since they distract attention from themselves. Some of these forms of resentment are familiar enough, and will be instantly recognizable by the listener. Others are less discussed, and might seem at first puzzling. It's easy to imagine how someone working in a French tea factory might resent the flock of useless new middle managers imposed on them, even before those middle managers decided to fire them all. It's not nearly so clear why those middle managers should resent the factory workers. But often middle managers, and even more those managers' administrative assistants, clearly do resent factory workers, for the simple reason that the latter have legitimate reason to take pride in their work. A key part of the justification of underpaying such workers is simple envy. Moral envy is an under-theorized phenomenon. I'm not sure that anyone has ever written a book about it. Still, it's clearly an important factor in human affairs. By moral envy, I am referring here to feelings of envy and resentment directed at another person, not because that person is wealthy or gifted or lucky, but because his or her behavior is seen as upholding a higher moral standard than the envier's own. The basic sentiment seems to be, how dare that person claim to be better than me, by acting in a way that I do indeed acknowledge is better than me. I remember first encountering this attitude in college when a lefty friend once told me that he no longer had any respect for a certain famous activist, since he had learned the activist in question kept an expensive apartment in New York for his ex-wife and child. What a hypocrite, he exclaimed. He could have given that money to the poor. When I pointed out the activist in question gave almost all his money to the poor, he was unmoved. When I pointed out the critic, while not exactly poor himself, appeared to give nothing to charity, he was offended. In fact, I'm not sure he ever spoke to me again. I've run into this attitude repeatedly ever since. Within a community of do-gooders, anyone who exemplifies shared values in too exemplary a way is seen as a threat. Ostentatiously good behavior, virtue signaling is the new catchword, is often perceived as a moral challenge. It doesn't matter if the person in question is entirely humble and unassuming. In fact, that can make it even worse, 
since humility can be seen as itself a moral challenge to those who secretly feel they aren't humble enough. Moral envy of this sort is rife in activist or religious communities. What I would like to suggest here is that it is also more subtly present in the politics surrounding work. Just as anger at immigrants often involves the simultaneous accusation that newcomers work both too much and too little, so does resentment against the poor focus simultaneously on those who don't work, since they are imagined to be lazy, and those who do work, since, unless they've been dragooned into some kind of workfare, at least they don't have bullshit jobs. Why, for instance, have conservatives in the United States been so successful at whipping up popular resentment against unionized hospital or auto workers? During the 2008 bailout of the financial industry, while there was a public outcry against bankers' million-dollar bonuses, no actual sanctions followed. However, the consequent bailout of the auto industry did involve sanctions on assembly line workers. They were widely denounced as coddled for having union contracts that allowed them generous health and pension plans, vacations, and $28 per hour wages, and forced into massive givebacks. Those working in the financial offices of the same companies who, insofar as they were not just sitting around doing nothing at all, were the ones who had actually caused the problems and were not expected to make similar sacrifices. As the local paper recalled, the bank bailout would be followed in February by a bailout of auto companies. Here, it was assumed that thousands of jobs must be shed for those companies to regain profitability. There had long been envy of auto workers' job protection and health benefits. Now, they became a scapegoat. As once-proud Michigan manufacturing cities all but shut down, right-wing radio commentators asserted that workers— instrumental historically through their labor struggles in obtaining seven-day work weeks and 40-hour days for everyone, were getting their just desserts. Matthew Kopka in Bailing Out Wall Street While the Ship of State is Sinking At the same time, one frequently circulated claim was that auto workers were making as much as $75 an hour, but this was based on an industry PR statement that took the total costs of all wages, benefits, and pensions for all workers and divided them by the total number of hours worked. Obviously, if one calculated by these means, almost any worker in any industry could be represented as getting two or three times his or her actual hourly wage. One reason American auto workers had such relatively generous plans, compared with other blue-collar workers, was first and foremost because they played such an essential role in creating something their fellow citizens actually needed, and what's more, something recognized as culturally important, indeed central to their sense of themselves as Americans. The second reason was that as factory workers, they were all concentrated in the same place, which made it easy to organize together. This meant that they could threaten strikes that would have a serious effect on the economy. It's hard to escape the impression that this was precisely what others resented about them. They get to make cars! Shouldn't that be enough for them? I have to sit around filling out stupid forms all day, and these bastards want to rub it in by threatening to go on strike to demand a dental plan, or two weeks off to take their kids to see the Grand Canyon or the Coliseum on top of that? 
It's quite the same with the otherwise inexplicable drumbeat of animosity directed in the United States against primary and secondary school teachers. School teachers, of course, are the very definition of those who chose a socially important and high-minded vocation in the full knowledge that it would involve low pay and stressful conditions. One becomes a teacher because one wants to have a positive impact on others' lives. As a New York subway recruiting ad used to say, no one ever called someone up 20 years later to thank them for being such an inspiring insurance claims adjuster. Yet again, this seems to be what makes them fair game in the eyes of all those who denounce them as spoiled, entitled, overpaid spouters of secular humanist anti-Americanism. Granted, one can understand why Republican activists target teachers' unions. Teachers' unions are one of the mainstays of support for the Democratic Party. But teachers' unions include both teachers and school administrators, the latter being those actually responsible for most of the policies most Republican activists object to. So why not focus on them? It would have been much easier for them to make a case that the school administrators are overpaid parasites than that teachers are coddled and spoiled. As Eli Horowitz noted, What's remarkable about this is that Republicans and other conservatives actually did complain about school administrators, but then they stopped. For whatever reason, those voices, which were few and quiet to begin with, dwindled to non-existence almost as soon as the conversation began. In the end, the teachers themselves turned out to be the more valid political targets, even though they do the more valuable work. Again, I think this can be put down to moral envy. Teachers are seen as people who have ostentatiously put themselves forward as self-sacrificing and public-spirited, as wanting to be the sort of person who gets a call 20 years later saying, Thank you. Thank you for all you did for me. For people like that to form unions, threaten strikes, and demand better working conditions is considered almost hypocritical. There is one major exception to the rule that anyone pursuing a useful or high-minded line of work, but who also expects comfortable levels of pay and benefits, is a legitimate target of resentment. The rule does not apply to soldiers or anyone else who works directly for the military. To the contrary, soldiers must never be resented. They are above critique. I've written about this curious exception before, but it might be helpful to recall the argument very briefly, because I think it's impossible to really understand right-wing populism without it. What follows is drawn largely from an essay that appeared in long format as Introduction, The Political Metaphysics of Stupidity, in The Commoner, Spring 2005, and shorter format in Harper's As Army of Altruists on the Alienated Right to Do Good. Let me again take the case of America because it's the one I'm most familiar with, though I'm assured the argument, in its broad outlines, does apply anywhere from Brazil to Japan. For right-wing populists in particular, military personnel are the ultimate good guys. One must support the troops. This is an absolute injunction. Anyone who would compromise on it in any way is a traitor, pure and simple. The ultimate bad guys, in contrast, are the intelligentsia, most working-class conservatives, for instance, don't have much use for corporate executives, but they usually don't feel especially passionate about their dislike for them. 
their true hatred is directed at the liberal elite. This divides into various branches, the Hollywood elite, the journalistic elite, university elite, fancy lawyers, or the medical establishment. That is, the sort of people who live in big coastal cities, watch public television or public radio, or even more, who might be involved in producing or appearing insane. It seems to me there are two perceptions that lie behind this resentment. One, the perception that members of this elite see ordinary working people as a bunch of knuckle-dragging cavemen, and two, the perception that these elites constitute an increasingly closed caste, one which the children of the working class would actually have far more difficulty breaking into than the class of actual capitalists. It also seems to me that both these perceptions are largely accurate. The first is pretty much self-evidently true if reactions to the 2016 election of Donald Trump are anything to go by. The white working class in particular is the one identity group in America toward which statements that might otherwise be immediately denounced as bigoted, for instance, that a certain class of people are ugly, violent, or stupid, are accepted without remark in polite society. The second is also true if you really think about it. We might again look to Hollywood for an illustration. Back in the 30s and 40s, even the name Hollywood would tend to evoke images of magical social advance. Hollywood was a place where a simple farm girl could go to the big city, be discovered, find herself a star. For present purposes, it doesn't really matter how often this actually happened. It clearly did now and then. The point is, at the time, Americans did not see the fable as inherently implausible. Look at a list of the lead actors of a major motion picture nowadays, and you are likely to find barely a single one that can't boast at least two generations of Hollywood actors, writers, producers, and directors in their family tree. The film industry has come to be dominated by an in-marrying cast. Is it surprising, then, that Hollywood celebrities' pretensions to egalitarian politics tend to ring a bit hollow in the ears of most working-class Americans. Neither is Hollywood in any way an exception in this regard. If anything, it's emblematic of what has happened to all the liberal professions, if perhaps a trifle more advanced. Conservative voters, I would suggest, tend to resent intellectuals more than they resent rich people, because they can imagine a scenario in which they or their children might become rich but cannot possibly imagine one in which they could ever become a member of the cultural elite. If you think about it, that's not an unreasonable assessment. A truck driver's daughter from Nebraska might not have very much chance of becoming a millionaire. America now has the lowest social mobility in the developed world, but it could happen. There's virtually no way that same daughter will ever become an international human rights lawyer or drama critic for the New York Times. Even if she could get into the right schools, there would certainly be no possible way for her to then go on to live in New York or San Francisco for the requisite years of unpaid internships. Insofar as there are not quite enough children of privilege to go around, since elites almost never give birth to enough offspring to reproduce themselves demographically, the jobs are likely to go to the most remarkable children of immigrants. Executives with Bank of America or Enron, when facing a similar demographic problem, 
are much more likely to recruit from poorer white folk like themselves. This is partly because of racism. Partly, too, because corporations tend to encourage a broadly anti-intellectual climate themselves. It is well known at Yale, where I once worked, that executive recruiters tend to prefer to hire Yale's B students, since they are more likely to be people they'll feel comfortable with. Even if the son of a glazier got a toehold in a well-positioned bullshit job, he would likely, like Eric, be unable or unwilling to transform it into a platform for the obligatory networking. There are a thousand invisible barriers. If we return to the opposition of value versus values laid out in the last chapter, we might put it this way. If you just want to make a lot of money, there might be a way to do it. On the other hand, if your aim is to pursue any other sort of value, whether that be truth, journalism, academia, beauty, the art world, publishing, justice, activism, human rights, charity, and so forth, and you actually want to be paid a living wage for it, then if you do not possess a certain degree of family wealth, social networks, and cultural capital, there's simply no way in. The liberal elite, then, are those who have placed an effective lock on any position where it's possible to get paid to do anything that one might do for any reason other than the money. They are seen as trying, and largely succeeding, in constituting themselves as a new American nobility, in the same sense as the Hollywood aristocracy, monopolizing the hereditary right to all those jobs where one can live well and still feel one is serving some higher purpose, which is to say, feel noble. In the United States, of course, all this is very much complicated by the country's legacy of slavery and inveterate racism. It's largely the white working class that expresses class resentment by focusing on intellectuals. African Americans, migrants, and the children of migrants tend to reject anti-intellectual politics and still see the educational system as the most likely means of social advancement for their children. This makes it easier for poor whites to see them as unfairly in alliance with rich white liberals. But what does all this have to do with supporting the troops? Well, if that truck driver's daughter was absolutely determined to find a job that would allow her to pursue something unselfish and high-minded, but still paid the rent and guaranteed access to adequate dental care, what options does she really have? If she's of a religious temperament, there might be some possibility in her local church. But such jobs are hard to come by. Mainly, she can join the army. The reality of the situation first came home to me over a decade ago when attending a lecture by Catherine Lutz, an anthropologist who has been carrying out a project studying the archipelago of U.S. overseas military bases. She made the fascinating observation that almost all of these bases organize outreach programs in which soldiers venture out to repair schoolrooms or to perform free dental checkups in nearby towns and villages. The ostensible reason for the programs was to improve relations with local communities, but they rarely have much impact in that regard. Still, even after the military discovered this, they kept the programs up because they had such an enormous psychological impact on the soldiers, many of whom would wax euphoric when describing them. For example, this is why I joined the army. This is what military service is really all about, not just defending your country, 
It's about helping people. Soldiers allowed to perform public service duties, they found, were two or three times more likely to re-enlist. I remember thinking, wait, so most of these people really want to be in the Peace Corps? And I duly looked it up and discovered, sure enough, to be accepted into the Peace Corps, you need to already have a college degree. The U.S. military is a haven for frustrated altruists. A case could be made that the great historical difference between what we call the left and the right largely turns on the relation between value and values. The left has always been about trying to collapse the gulf between the domain dominated by pure self-interest and the domain traditionally dominated by high-minded principles. The right has always been about prizing them even farther apart and then claiming ownership of both. They stand for both greed and charity. Hence the otherwise inexplicable alliance in the Republican Party between the free market libertarians and the values voters of the Christian right. What this comes down to in practice has usually been the political equivalent of a strategy of good cop, bad cop. First, unleash the chaos of the market to destabilize lives and all existing verities alike. Then, offer yourself up as the last bastion of the authority of church and fatherhood against the barbarians they have themselves unleashed. By juxtaposing the call to support the troops with condemnations of the liberal elite, the right is effectively calling out the left as hypocrites. They're saying, 60s campus radicals claimed they were trying to create a new society in which everyone could be happy idealists living in material prosperity, where under communism, the distinction between value and values would be annihilated, and all would work for the common good. But all they really ended up doing was to guarantee any jobs which allow one to feel like one is doing that are set aside exclusively for their own spoiled children. This has some very important implications for the nature of the societies we live in. One thing it suggests about capitalism more generally is that societies based on greed, even that say that human beings are inherently selfish and greedy and then attempt to valorize this sort of behavior, don't really believe it and secretly dangle out the right to behave altruistically as a reward for playing along. Only those who can prove their mettle at selfishness are to be afforded the right to be selfless. Or that's how the game is supposed to work. If you suffer and scheme, and by doing so manage to accumulate enough economic value, then you are allowed to cash in and turn your millions into something unique, higher, intangible, or beautiful. That is, turn value into values. You assemble a collection of Rembrandts or classic racing cars. Or you set up a foundation and devote the rest of your life to charity. To skip straight to the end is obviously cheating. We are back to Abraham Lincoln's version of medieval life cycle service, with the proviso that now the overwhelming majority of us can only expect to experience anything like full adulthood on retirement, if at all. Soldiers are the one legitimate exception because they serve their country. And, I suspect, because usually they don't get much out of it in the long run. This would explain why right-wing populists, so unconditional in their support for the troops during their term of service, seem so strangely indifferent to the fact 
that a large percentage of them end up spending the rest of their lives homeless, jobless, impoverished, addicted, or begging with no legs. A poor kid might tell himself he's joining the Marines for the educational and career opportunities, but everyone knows that's at best a crapshoot. Such is the nature of his sacrifice, hence of his true nobility. All the other objects of resentment I've mentioned so far can be seen as ostentatious violations of the principle of inverse relation of compensation and social benefit. Unionized auto workers and teachers perform a vitally necessary function, yet have the temerity to demand middle-class lifestyles. They are objects of a special ire, I suspect, by those trapped in soul-destroying, low- and middle-level bullshit jobs. Members of the liberal elite, of the Bill Maher or Angelina Jolie variety, are seen as having skipped to the front of every line they've ever been asked to stand on, so as to be able to monopolize the few jobs that do exist that are simultaneously fun, well-paid, and make a difference in the world, while at the same time presuming to represent themselves as the voice of social justice. They are the particular objects of resentment of the working class, whose painful, difficult, body-destroying, but equally socially useful labor never seems to strike such paragons of liberalism as of much interest or importance. At the same time, that indifference would seem to overlap with the outright envious hostility of those members of the liberal classes trapped in higher-order bullshit jobs toward those same working classes for their ability to make an honest living. How the current crisis over robotization relates to the larger problem of bullshit jobs. Puritanism. The haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. H.L. Mencken. A crisscrossing of resentments increasingly defines the politics of wealthy countries. This is a disastrous state of affairs. It seems to me all this makes the old leftist question, every day we wake up and collectively make a world together, but which one of us, left to our own devices, would ever decide they wanted to make a world like this one, more relevant than ever? In many respects, the science fiction fantasies of the early 20th century have become possible. We can't teleport or place colonies on Mars, it's true, but we could easily rearrange matters in such a way that pretty much everyone on Earth lived lives of relative ease and comfort. In material terms, this would not be very difficult. While the pace at which scientific revolutions and technological breakthroughs occur has slowed considerably since the heady pace the world came to be familiar with from roughly 1750 to 1950, improvements in robotics continue, largely because they are a matter of improved application of existing technological knowledge. Combined with advances in material science, they are ushering in an age where a very large proportion of the most dreary and tiresome mechanical tasks can indeed be eliminated. What this means is that work, as we know it, will less and less resemble what we think of as productive labor, and more and more resemble caring labor. Since, after all, caring consists mainly of the sorts of things most of us would least like to see done by a machine. There has been a great deal of effort to normalize the idea that caring tasks can or should be carried out by machines, but I don't think it has been or really could be successful in the long run. 
There's been a lot of scare literature of late about the perils of mechanization. Most of it follows along the lines that Kurt Vonnegut had already developed in his very first novel, Player Piano, in 1952. With most forms of manual labor eliminated, society, these critics warn, will necessarily divide into two classes. A wealthy elite who own and design the robots, and a haggard and disconsolate former working class who spend their days shooting pool and drinking because they have nothing else to do. The middle class would split between them. This obviously not only completely ignored the caring aspects of real labor, it also assumed property relations were unalterable, and that human beings, at least those who were not, say, science fiction writers, were so completely unimaginative that even with unlimited free time, they would be unable to come up with anything particularly interesting to do. It is interesting to note in this context that Vonnegut had, in fact, been enrolled for a master's degree in anthropology at the University of Chicago immediately after the war, though he never completed his dissertation. This no doubt explains why one of the main characters in the book is an anthropologist. Perhaps if he'd studied harder, he'd have realized that his premise, that workers would not be able to handle too much leisure, was profoundly flawed. Ray Fogelson, who was there at the time, told me he returned many years later with a thesis so obviously dashed together it left the department in a quandary, so they decided to grant him a degree instead for Cat's Cradle. The 1960s counterculture challenged the second and third assumptions, though not so much the first one, with many 60s revolutionaries embracing the slogan, Let the machines do all the work. This in turn led to a renewed backlash of moralizing about work as a value in itself of the sort we've already encountered in Chapter 6. At the same time, as an export of many factory jobs to poor countries where labor was cheap enough, it could still be performed by human beings. It was in the wake of this reaction to the 60s counterculture in the 70s and 80s that the first wave of managerial feudalism and the extreme bullshitization of employment began to make itself felt. The latest wave of robotization has caused the same moral crises and moral panics as the 60s. The only real difference is that, since any significant change in economic models, let alone property regimes, is now treated as definitively off of the table, it's simply assumed the only possible result will be to convey even more wealth and power to the 1%. Martin Ford's recent The Rise of the Robots, for example, documents how, after making most blue-collar workers redundant, Silicon Valley is in the process of taking aim at healthcare, education, and the liberal professions as well. The likely outcome, he predicts, is techno-feudalism. Throwing workers out of work, or impoverishing them by forcing them to compete with machines, will be deeply problematic, he argues, particularly since, without paychecks, how exactly is anyone going to afford all the shiny toys and efficient services the robots will provide? This may be a cruelly simplified summary, but it helps to underline what I think to be missing from such accounts. That predictions of robots replacing humans always go just so far and then stop. It's possible for futurologists to imagine robots replacing sports editors, sociologists, or real estate agents, for example, Yet I have yet to see one suggest that the basic functions that capitalists are supposed to perform, 
which mainly consists of figuring out the optimal way to invest resources in order to answer current or potential future consumer demand, could possibly be performed by a machine. Why not? One could easily make a case that the main reason the Soviet economy worked so badly was because they were never able to develop computer technology efficient enough to coordinate such large amounts of data automatically. But the Soviet Union only made it to the 1980s. Now, it would be easy. Yet no one dares suggest this. The famous Oxford study by engineer Michael Osborne and economist Carl Frey, which sizes up 702 different professions in terms of their susceptibility for being replaced by robots, for instance, considers hydrologists, makeup artists, and travel guides but makes no mention whatsoever of the possibility of automated entrepreneurs, investors, or financiers. The most likely at 702 is telemarketer, the least at number one, recreational therapist. Anthropologists such as myself are fairly safe at number 32. The original online version of the paper appeared in 2013 and received a good deal of news coverage at the time. At this point, my own instinct is to turn for inspiration from Vonnegut to a different science fiction writer, Stanislaw Lem, whose space voyager, Ijon Tishi, describes a visit to a planet inhabited by a species to which the author gives the rather unsubtle name of Fools. At the time of his arrival, the Fools were experiencing a classic Marxian overproduction crisis. Traditionally, they had been divided into spirators, priests, eminence, aristocrats, and drudglings, workers. As one helpful native explained, through the ages, inventors built machines that simplified work, and where in ancient times a hundred drudglings had bent their sweating backs, centuries later a few stood by a machine. Our scientists improved the machines, and the people rejoiced at that, but subsequent events show how cruelly premature was that rejoicing the factories ultimately became a little too efficient, and one day an engineer created machines that could operate with no supervision at all. When the new machines appeared in the factories, hordes of drudglings lost their jobs, and, receiving no salary, they faced starvation. Excuse me, fool, I asked, but what became of the profits the factories made? The profits, he replied, went to the rightful owners, of course. Now then, as I was saying, the threat of annihilation hung. But what are you saying, worthy fool? I cried. All that had to be done was to make the factories common property, and the new machines would have become a blessing to you. The minute I say this, the fool trembled, blinked his ten eyes nervously, and cupped his ears to ascertain whether any of his companions milling about the stairs had overheard my remark. By the ten noses of the foo, I implore you, O stranger, do not utter such vile heresy, which attacks the very foundations of our freedom. Our supreme law, the principle of civic initiative, states that no one can be compelled, constrained, or even coaxed to do what he does not wish. Who, then, would dare expropriate the eminence factories, it being their will to enjoy possession of same? That would be the most horrible violation of liberty imaginable. Now, then, to continue... The new machines produced an abundance of extremely cheap goods and excellent food, but the drudglings bought nothing, for they had not the wherewithal. Before long, the drudglings, though, as Tishi's interlocutor insisted, 
entirely free to do what they wanted, provided they did not interfere in anyone else's property rights, were dropping like flies. Much heated debate ensued, and a succession of failed half-measures. The Fool's High Council, the Plenum Moronicum, attempted to replace the drudglings as consumers as well, by creating robots that would eat, use, and enjoy all the products the new machines produced far more intensely than any living being could possibly do, while also materializing money to pay for it. But this was unsatisfying. Finally, realizing a system where both production and consumption were being done by machines was rather pointless, they concluded the best solution would be for the entire population to render itself, entire voluntarily, to the factories to be converted into beautiful shiny disks and arranged in pleasant patterns across the landscape. This might seem heavy-handed, but sometimes, I think, a dose of heavy-handed Marxism is exactly what we need. Lem was writing in still-socialist Poland in the 1970s, but for what it's worth, his satire of Stalinism is just as merciless. On another journey, Ijon Tishi finds himself in a planet governed by a vast irrigation bureaucracy that has become so caught up in their mission that they have developed the ideology that humans are naturally evolving into fish. The inhabitants are forced to practice breathing water for increasing numbers of hours every day. Lem is right. It's hard to imagine a sure sign that one is dealing with an irrational economic system than the fact that the prospect of eliminating drudgery is considered to be a problem. Star Trek solved the problem with replicators, and young radicals here in the United Kingdom sometimes talk about a future of fully automated luxury communism, which is basically the same thing. A case could easily be made that any future robots and replicators should be the common property of humanity as a whole, since they would be the fruit of a collective mechanical intelligence that goes back centuries, in much the same way as a national culture is the creation of, and thus belongs to, everyone. Automated public factories would make life easier. Still, they wouldn't actually eliminate the need for drudglings. Lim's story, and others like it, still assume that work means factory work, or anyway, productive work, and ignore what most working-class jobs actually consist of. For instance, the fact noted in the last chapter, that workers in ticket offices in the London Underground aren't there to take tickets, but to find lost children and talk down drunks. Not only are robots that could perform such functions very far away, but even if they did exist, most of us would not want such tasks performed in a way a robot would perform them anyway. So, the more automation proceeds, the more it should be obvious that actual value emerges from the caring element of work. Yet this leads to another problem. The caring value of work would appear to be precisely that element in labor that cannot be quantified. Much of the bullshitization of real jobs, I would say, and much of the reason for the expansion of the bullshit sector more generally, is a direct result of the desire to quantify the unquantifiable. To put it bluntly, automation makes certain tasks more efficient, but at the same time, it makes other tasks less efficient. This is because it requires enormous amounts of human labor to render the processes, tasks, and outcomes that surround anything of caring value 
into a form that computers can even recognize. It is now possible to build a robot that can, all by itself, sort a pile of fresh fruits or vegetables into ripe, raw, and rotten. This is a good thing because sorting fruit, especially for more than an hour or two, is boring. It is not possible to build a robot that can, all by itself, scan over a dozen history course reading lists and decide which is the best course. This isn't such a bad thing either because such work is interesting. Or at least it's not hard to locate people who would find it so. One reason to have robots sorting fruit is so that real human beings can have more time to think about what history course they'd prefer to take, or some equally unquantifiable thing like who's their favorite funk guitarist or what color they'd like to dye their hair. However, and here's the catch, if we did for some reason wish to pretend that a computer could decide which is the best history course, say because we decided we need to have uniform, quantifiable quality standards to apply across the university for funding purposes. There's no way that computer could do the task by itself. The fruit you can just roll into a bin. In the case of the history course, it requires enormous human effort to render the material into units that a computer would even begin to know what to do with. On the political ramifications of bullshitization and consequent decline of productivity in the caring sector as it relates to the possibility of a revolt of the caring classes. Since at least the Great Depression, we've been hearing warnings that automation was or was about to be throwing millions out of work. Keynes, at the time, coined the term technological unemployment, and many assumed the mass unemployment of the 1930s was just a sign of things to come. And while this might make it seem such claims have always been somewhat alarmist, what this book suggests is that the opposite was the case. They were entirely accurate. Automation did, in fact, lead to mass unemployment. We've simply stopped the gap by adding dummy jobs that are effectively made up. A combination of political pressure from both right and left, a deeply held popular feeling that paid employment alone can make one a full moral person, and finally a fear on the part of the upper classes, already noted by George Orwell in 1933, of what the laboring masses might get up to if they had too much leisure on their hands, has ensured that whatever the underlying reality, when it comes to official unemployment figures in wealthy countries, the needle should never jump too far from the range of 3 to 8%. But if one eliminates bullshit jobs from the picture, and the real jobs that only exist to support them, one could say that the catastrophe predicted in the 1930s really did happen. Upward of 50% to 60% of the population has, in fact, been thrown out of work. Except, of course, there's absolutely no reason it should have been a catastrophe. Over the course of the last several thousand years, there have been untold thousands of human groups that might be referred to as societies, and the overwhelming majority of them managed to figure out ways to distribute those tasks that needed to be done to keep them alive in the style to which they were accustomed in such a fashion that most everyone had some way to contribute, and no one had to spend the majority of their waking hours performing tasks they would rather not be doing in the way that people do today. Bear in mind that, averaged over a year, even medieval serfs did not work even close to a 40-hour week. What's more, faced with the 
problem of abundant leisure time, people in those societies seem to have had little trouble figuring out ways to entertain themselves or otherwise pass the time. I'm not going to dignify here arguments put forward in some quarters that reducing hours of employment will lead to an increase in crime, unhealthy practices, or other negative social effects. I'm sure identical arguments could have been made against freeing slaves, and likely were. I see them as having an equivalent moral standing. How is arguing that people should be forced to work 40 hours a week they would not otherwise have to work because they might otherwise drink, smoke, or commit crimes any different from arguing that the entire population should be placed in prison for an equivalent amount of time as a form of preventative detention. From the perspective of anyone born in one of those past societies, we'd probably look just as irrational as the fools to Ijantishi. The reason the current allocation of labor looks the way it does, then, has nothing to do with economics or even human nature. It's ultimately political. There was no reason we had to try to quantify the value of caring labor. There is no real reason we have to continue to do so. We could stop. But before we launch a campaign to reconstitute work and how we value it, I think we would do well to once again consider carefully the political forces at play. One way to think about what's happened is to return to the opposition between value and values through which perspective, of course, what we are seeing is an attempt to force one to submit to the logic of the other. Before the Industrial Revolution, most people worked at home. It's only since, perhaps, 1750 or even 1800 that it's made any sense to talk about society as we typically do today, as if it were made up of a collection of factories and offices, workplaces, on the one hand, and a collection of homes, schools, churches, water parks, and the like on the other, presumably with a giant shopping mall placed somewhere in between. If work is the domain of production, then home is the domain of consumption, which is also, of course, the domain of values, which means that what work people do engage in in this domain, they largely do for free. But you can also flip the whole thing around and look at society from the opposite point of view, from the perspective of business, yes, homes and schools are just the places we produce and raise and train a capable workforce. But from a human perspective, that's about as crazy as building a million robots to consume the food that people can no longer afford to eat, or warning African countries, as the World Bank has occasionally been known to do, that they need to do more to control HIV because if everyone is dead, it will have adverse effects on the economy. As Karl Marx once pointed out, prior to the Industrial Revolution, it never seems to have occurred to anyone to write a book asking what conditions would create the most overall wealth. Many, however, wrote books about what conditions would create the best people. That is, how should society be best arranged to produce the sort of human beings one would like to have around, as friends, lovers, neighbors, relatives, or fellow citizens? This is the kind of question that concerned Aristotle, Confucius and Ibn Khaldun, and in the final analysis, it's still the only really important one. Human life is a process by which we as humans create one another. Even the most extreme individualists only become individuals through the care and support of their fellows. And the economy 
is ultimately just the way we provide ourselves with the necessary material provisions with which to do so. If so, talking about values, which are valuable because they can't be reduced to numbers, is the way that we have traditionally talked about the process of mutual creation and caring. One might call it human production, and I have done so elsewhere, but in this context even that seems to hit the wrong note. Now, clearly, if we assume this to be true, then the domain of value has been systematically invading the domain of values for at least the last 50 years, and it's hardly surprising that political arguments have come to take the form they do. For instance, in many major American cities, the largest employers are now universities and hospitals. The economy of such cities, then, centers on a vast apparatus of production and maintenance of human beings. Divided, in good Cartesian fashion, between educational institutions designed to shape the mind and medical institutions designed to maintain the body. In other cities, such as New York, universities and hospitals come in second and third as employers, the biggest employers being banks. I'll get back to banks in a moment. Where once left-wing political parties at least claimed to represent factory workers, nowadays all such pretense has been discarded, and they have come to be dominated by the professional managerial classes that run institutions like schools and hospitals. Right-wing populism has taken systematic aim at the authority of those institutions in the name of a different set of religious or patriarchal values. For instance, challenging the authority of universities by rejecting climate science or evolution, or challenging the authority of the medical system by campaigns against contraception or abortion. Or it has dabbled in impossible fantasies about returning to the industrial age, Trump. But really, this is something of a bitter ender game. Realistically, the likelihood of right populists in America wresting control of the apparatus of human production from the corporate left is about as great as the likelihood of a socialist party taking power in America and collectivizing heavy industry. For the moment, it would appear to be a standoff. The mainstream left largely controls the production of humans. The mainstream right largely controls the production of things. It's in this context that the financialization and bullshitization of both the corporate sector and particularly the caring sector are taking place, leading to ever higher social costs, even at the same time as those who are doing the actual frontline caring are finding themselves increasingly squeezed. Everything seems to be in place for a revolt of the caring classes. Why has none yet taken place? Well, one obvious reason is the way that right-wing populism and divide-and-conquer racism have placed many of the caring classes in opposite camps. But on top of that, there's the even stickier problem that in many areas of dispute, both sides are supposed to be in the same political camp. This is where banks come in. The entanglement of banks, universities, and hospitals has become truly insidious. Finance works its way into everything, from car loans to credit cards, but it's significant that the principal cause of bankruptcy in America is medical debt, and the principal force drawing young people into bullshit jobs is the need to pay student loans. Yet since Clinton in the United States and Blair in the United Kingdom, it's been the ostensibly left parties 
that have most embraced the rule of finance, received the largest contributions from the financial sector, and worked the most closely with financial lobbyists to reform the laws to make all this possible. No doubt one could quibble over who received the most money from whom in what circumstances, but it was Bill Clinton who presided over the repeal of Glass-Steagall, thus liberalizing finance and opening the way to the 2008-2009 crisis, and Tony Blair in the UK who first introduced tuition fees in the British universities. It was exactly at the same time that these same parties self-consciously rejected any remaining elements of their old working-class constituencies, and instead became, as Tom Frank has so effectively demonstrated, the parties of the professional managerial class. That is, not just doctors and lawyers, but the administrators and managers actually responsible for the bullshitization of the caring sectors of the economy. If nurses were to rebel against the fact that they have to spend the bulk of their shifts doing paperwork, they would have to rebel against their own union leaders, who are firmly allied with the Clintonite Democratic Party, whose core support comes from the hospital administrators responsible for imposing the paperwork on them to begin with. If teachers were to rebel, they'd have to rebel against school administrators, who are actually represented in many cases by the exact same union. If they protest too loudly, they will simply be told they have no choice but to accept bullshitization, because the only alternative is to surrender to the racist barbarians of the populist right. I have myself smashed my head against this dilemma repeatedly. Back in 2006, when I was being kicked out of Yale for my support of grad students engaged in a teacher unionization drive, the anthropology department had to get special permission to change the reappointment rules for my case, and my case only, in order to get rid of me, Union strategists considered a campaign on my behalf on MoveOn.org and similar left-liberal mailing lists, until reminded that the Yale administrators behind my dismissal were probably active on those lists themselves. Years later, with Occupy Wall Street, which might be considered the first great rising of the caring classes, I watched those same progressive professional managerials first attempt to co-opt the movement for the Democratic Party then, when that proved impossible, sit idly by or even collude while a peaceful movement was suppressed by military force. On universal basic income, as an example of a program that might begin to detach work from compensation and put an end to the dilemmas described in this book. I don't usually like putting policy recommendations in my books. One reason for this is that it has been my experience that if an author is critical of existing social arrangements, reviewers will often respond by effectively asking, so what are you proposing to do about it then? Search the text until they find something that looks like a policy suggestion, and then act as if that is what the book is basically about. So if I were to suggest that a mass reduction of working hours or a policy of universal basic income might go far in solving the problems described here, the likely response will be to see this as a book about reducing working hours or about universal basic income, and to treat it as if it stands and falls on the workability of that policy, or even the ease by which it could be implemented. That would be deceptive. This is not a book about a particular solution. It's a book about a problem, one that most people don't even acknowledge exists. Another reason I hesitate to make policy suggestions 
is that I am suspicious of the very idea of policy. Policy implies the existence of an elite group, government officials typically, that gets to decide on something, a policy, that they then arrange to be imposed on everybody else. There's a little mental trick we often play on ourselves when discussing such matters. We say, for instance, what are we going to do about the problem of X? As if we were society as a whole, somehow acting on ourselves, but in fact, unless we happen to be part of that roughly 3% to 5% of the population whose views actually do affect policymakers, this is all a game of make-believe. We are identifying with our rulers when in fact we're the ones being ruled. This is what happens when we watch a politician on television say, what shall we do about the less fortunate? Even though at least half of us would almost certainly fit that category ourselves. Myself, I find such games particularly pernicious because I'd prefer not to have policy elites around at all. I'm personally an anarchist, which means that not only do I look forward to a day sometime in the future when governments, corporations, and the rest will be looked at as historical curiosities in the same way as we now look at the Spanish Inquisition or nomadic invasions, but I prefer solutions to immediate problems that do not give more power to government or corporations, but rather give people the means to manage their own affairs. It follows that when faced with a social problem, my impulse is not to imagine myself in charge and ponder what sort of solutions I would then impose, but to look for a movement already out there, already trying to address the problem and create its own solutions. The problem of bullshit jobs, though, presents unusual challenges in this regard. There are no anti-bullshit job movements. This is partly because most people don't acknowledge the proliferation of bullshit jobs to be a problem, but also because even if they did, it would be difficult to organize a movement around such a problem. What local initiatives might such a movement propose? One could imagine unions or other worker organizations launching anti-bullshit initiatives in their own workplaces, or even across specific industries, but they would presumably call for the de-bullshitization of real work rather than firing people in unnecessary positions. It's not at all clear what a broader campaign against bullshit jobs would even look like. One might try to shorten the working week and hope things would sort themselves out in response, but it seems unlikely that they would. Even a successful campaign for a 15-hour week would be unlikely to cause the unnecessary jobs and industries to be spontaneously abandoned. At the same time, calling for a new government bureaucracy to assess the usefulness of jobs would inevitably itself turn into a vast generator of bullshit. So would a guaranteed jobs program. I've only been able to identify one solution currently being promoted by social movements that would reduce rather than increase the size and intrusiveness of government. That's universal basic income. Let me end with a final testimony from an activist friend whose political purpose in life is to render her own bullshit job unnecessary and one of her fellow activists. Leslie is a benefits advisor in the United Kingdom. That is, she works for an NGO whose purpose is to guide citizens through the elaborate obstacle course successive governments have set up to make it as difficult as possible for those out of work or otherwise in material need 
to get access to the money the government claims it has set apart for them. Here is the testimony she sent in. Leslie. My job shouldn't be necessary, but it is, because of the whole long train of bullshit jobs invented to keep people who need money from having it. As if claiming any kind of benefit were not Kafkaesque, intrusive, and humiliating enough, they also make it incredibly complicated. Even when someone is entitled to something, the process of applying is so complex, most need help to understand the questions and their own rights. Leslie has had to deal for years with the insanity that ensues when one tries to reduce human caring to a format that can be recognized by computers, let alone computers designed to keep caring precisely limited. As a result, she ends up in much the same position as Tanya in Chapter 2, who had to spend hours rewriting job applicants' CVs and coaching them on which keywords to use to make it past the computer. Leslie there are now certain words which have to be used on the forms. I call it the catechism, which, if not used, can result in a failed claim. But these are only known by those like myself who have had training and access to the handbooks. And even then, especially for disability claims, the claimant often ends up having to fight through to a tribunal to get their entitlement recognized. I do get a little thrill every time we win through for someone. But this doesn't make up for the anger I feel about the colossal waste of everyone's time this is. For the claimant, for me, for the various bods at the DWP, Department of Works and Pensions, who deal with the claim, for the judges at the tribunals, the experts called in to support either side, isn't there something more constructive we could all be doing, like, I don't know, installing solar panels or gardening? I also often wonder about whoever made up these rules. How much did they get paid for it? How long did it take them? How many people were involved? To their minds, I guess they were ensuring that the non-eligible don't get money. And then I think of visiting aliens laughing at us, humans inventing rules to prevent other humans from getting access to tokens of a human concept, money, which is by its nature not scarce. On top of all that, since she is a do-gooder, Leslie can expect to make only a minimal living herself, and the money to run her office itself involves satisfying an endless chain of self-satisfied paper pushers. Leslie To add insult to injury, my work is funded by charity trusts, a whole other long chain of BS jobs, from me applying for money up to the CEOs who claim their organizations fight poverty or make the world a better place. At my end, this starts with hours searching for relevant funds, reading their guidelines, spending time learning how to best approach them, filling out forms, making phone calls. If successful, I'll next have to spend hours every month compiling statistics and filling out monitoring forms. Each trust has its own catechism and its own set of indicators. Each wants their own set of evidence that we are empowering people or creating change or innovation when, in fact, we're juggling rules and language on behalf of people who just need help to fill out the paperwork so they can get on with their lives. Leslie told me of studies that demonstrates that any system of means testing, no matter how it's framed, will necessarily mean at least 20% of those who legitimately qualify for benefits give up and don't apply. That's almost certainly more than the number of cheats who might be detected by the rules. 
In fact, even counting those who are honestly mistaken, the number still only comes to 1.6%. The 20% figure would apply even if no one actually was formally denied benefits at all. But of course, the rules are designed to deny as many claimants as can plausibly be denied. Between sanctions and capricious applications of the rules, we've gotten to the point now where 60% of those eligible for unemployment benefits in the United Kingdom don't get them. In other words, everyone she describes, the entire archipelago that starts with the bureaucrats who write the rules and includes the DWP, enforcement tribunals, advocates, and employees who work for the funding bodies that process applications for the NGOs that employ those advocates, all of them are part of a single vast apparatus that exists to maintain the illusion that people are naturally lazy and don't really want to work. And therefore, that even if society does have a responsibility to ensure they don't literally starve to death, it is necessary to make the process of providing them with the means of continued existence as confusing, time-consuming, and humiliating as possible. The job, then, is essentially a kind of horrific combination of box-ticking and duct-taping, making up for the inefficiencies of a system of caregiving intentionally designed not to work. Thousands of people are maintained on comfortable salaries in air-conditioned offices simply in order to ensure that poor people continue to feel bad about themselves. Leslie knew this better than anyone because she'd spent time on both sides of the desk. She had been on benefits herself for years as a single mother. She knew exactly what things looked like on the receiving end. Her solution? Eliminate the apparatus entirely. She is involved in the movement for universal basic income which calls for replacing all means-tested social welfare benefits with a flat fee to be paid to everyone equally residing in the country. Candy, a fellow basic income activist, who also held a useless job in the system whose details she preferred not to disclose, told me she originally became interested in such issues when she first moved to London in the 1980s and became part of the International Wages for Housework movement. Candy. I got involved in wages for housework because I felt that my mother needed it. She was trapped in a bad marriage, and she would have left my dad a lot earlier if she'd had her own money. That's something really important for anyone in an abusive or even just boring relationship, to be able to get out of it without being financially impacted. I'd just been in London for a year. I'd been trying to get involved in some form of feminism back in the States. One of my formative memories was my mother taking me to a consciousness-raising group in Ohio when I was nine. We ripped out pages from St. Paul's Gospel where he was talking about how terrible women are and made a pile of them. And because I was the youngest member of the group, they told me to like the pile. I remember I wouldn't do it at first because I'd been taught not to play with matches. David. But you did eventually light it. Candy. I did. My mother gave me permission. Not long after that, she got a job that paid enough to live on, and immediately she left my dad. That was kind of proof in the pudding for me. In London, Candy found herself drawn to wages for housework, then widely seen by most other feminists as an annoying, if not dangerous, fringe group, because she saw it as providing an alternative to sterile debates between liberals and separatists. 
Here, at least, was an economic analysis of the real-life problems women faced. Some, at the time, were beginning to speak of a global work machine, a planet-wide wage-labor system designed to pump more and more effort out of more and more people. But what feminist critics had begun pointing out was that same system also defined what was to be considered real labor, the kind that could be reduced to time and could thus be bought and sold, and what wasn't. Most women's labor was placed in the latter category, despite the fact that without it, the very machine that stamped it as not really work would grind to a halt immediately. Wages for housework was essentially an attempt to call capitalism's bluff, to say most work, even factory work, is done for a variety of motives. But if you want to insist that work is only valuable as a marketable commodity, then at least you can be consistent about the matter. If women were to be compensated in the same way as men, then a huge proportion of the world's wealth would instantly have to be handed over to them. And wealth, of course, is power. What follows is from a conversation with both of them. David. So, inside wages for housework, were there many debates about the policy implications? You know, the mechanisms through which the wages would actually be paid. Candy. Oh no, it was. Much more a perspective, a way to expose the unpaid work that was being done that nobody was supposed to talk about, and for that it did a really good job. Few were talking about the work women were already doing for free in the 1960s, but it became an issue when wages for housework was established in the 1970s, and now it's standard to take it into account when working out divorce settlements, for example. David. So the demand itself was basically a provocation. Candy, it was much more a provocation than it was ever a plan. This is how we could actually do it. Anything like that. We did talk about where the money would come from. At first, it was all about getting money out of capital. Then, in the later eighties, Wilmette Brown's book *Black Women and the Peace Movement* came out, all about how war and the war economy affects women and. Particularly black women more than anyone else. So we started using the slogan, "Pay women, not soldiers." Actually, you still hear that wage caring, not killing. So we certainly targeted where the money was, but we never much got into the mechanics. David, wait, wage caring, not killing. Whose slogan is that? Leslie, global women's strike. That's the contemporary successor to wages for housework. When we came out with the first European UBI Universal Basic Income petition back in 2013, that was Global Women's Strike's response. Two months later, they put out a petition to wage carers instead, which myself I wouldn't have a problem with if they were willing to admit that everyone is a carer in one form or another. If you're not looking after someone else, then at the very least you're looking after yourself and. This takes time and energy. The system is less and less willing to afford people. But then recognizing that would just lead back to UBI again. If everyone's a carer, then you might as well just fund everybody and let them decide for themselves who they want to care for at any given time. Candy had come around from wages for housework to UBI for similar reasons. She and some of her fellow activists started asking themselves. Say we did want to promote a real practical program, what would that be? Candy. 
The reaction we used to get on the street when we leafleted for wages for housework was either women would say, great, where can I sign up? Or they'd say, how dare you demand money for something I do for love? That second reaction wasn't entirely crazy. These women were understandably resistant to commodifying all human activity in the way that getting a wage for housework might imply. Candy was particularly moved by the arguments of the French socialist thinker André Gorsch. When I offered my own analysis on the inherently unquantifiable nature of caring, she told me Gorsch had anticipated it 40 years ago. Candy. Gorsch's critique of wages for housework was that if you kept emphasizing the importance of care to the global economy in strictly financial terms, then there was the danger that you'd end up putting a dollar value on different forms of caring and saying, that's its real value. But in that case, you were running the risk of more and more of that caring becoming monetized, quantified, and therefore kind of fucked up, because monetizing those activities often decreases the qualitative value of the care, especially if it's done, as it is usually, as a list of specific tasks with set time limits. He was already saying that in the 70s, and now, of course, that's exactly what's transpired, even in teaching, nursing. Gorsh's actual words, the search for higher productivity would lead to the standardization and industrialization of such activities, particularly those involving the feeding, minding, raising, and education of children. The last enclave of individual or communal autonomy would disappear. Socialization, commodification, and pre-programming would be extended to the last vestiges of self-determined and self-regulated life. The industrialization, through home computers, of physical and psychical care and hygiene, children's education, cooking, or sexual technique, is precisely designed to generate capitalist profits from activities still left to individual fantasy. Gorsch is originally published in French in 1980, which makes it really quite prophetic. The more specific engagement with the wages for housework movement is in Critique of Economic Reason. Leslie. Let alone what I do. David. Yeah, I know. Bullshitization is my phrase. Candy. Yes, it's been bullshitized, absolutely. Leslie. Whereas UBI... Didn't Sylvia Federici write or talk in an interview recently about how the UN and then all sorts of world bodies kind of glommed on to feminism as a way to resolve the capitalist crisis of the 70s? They said, sure, let's bring women and carers into the paid workforce. Most working class women were already doing a double day. Not to empower women, but as a way of disciplining men. Because insofar as you see an equalization of wages since then, it's mainly because, in real terms, working-class men's wages have gone down, not because women are necessarily getting that much more. They're always trying to set us against each other. And that's what all these mechanisms for assessing the relative value of different kinds of work are necessarily going to be about. That's why, for me, the pilot study of basic income carried out in India is so exciting. Well, a lot of things are exciting about it. For instance, domestic violence goes way down. This makes sense because I think some 80% of domestic disputes that lead to violence turn out to be about money. But the main thing is, it starts to make social inequalities dissolve. You start by giving everyone an equal amount of money. 
That in itself is important because money has a certain symbolic power. It's something that's the same for everyone. And when you give everyone, men, women, old, young, high caste, low caste, exactly the same amount, those differences start to dissolve. This happened in the Indian pilot, where they observed that the girls were given the same amount of food as boys, unlike before, disabled people were more accepted in village activities, and young women dropped the social convention that said they were supposed to be shy and modest and started hanging around in public like boys. Girls started participating in public life. And any UBI payment would have to be enough to live on all by itself, and it would have to be completely unqualified. Everyone has to get it, even people who don't need it. It's worth it just to establish the principle that when it comes to what's required to live, everyone deserves that equally without qualification. This makes it a human right, not just charity or duct tape for lack of other forms of income. Then, if there are further needs on top of that, say someone is disabled, well, then you address that too, but only after you establish the right of material existence for all people. This is one of the elements that startles and confuses a lot of people when they first hear about the concept of basic income. Surely you aren't going to give $25,000 a year, or whatever it is, to Rockefellers too. The answer is yes. Everyone is everyone. It's not like there are so many billionaires this will come to a particularly large amount of money. Rich people could be taxed more anyway. If one wanted to start means testing, even for billionaires, then one would have to set up a bureaucracy to start means testing again, and if history tells us anything, it's that such bureaucracies tend to expand. What basic income ultimately proposes is to detach livelihood from work. Its immediate effect would be to massively reduce the amount of bureaucracy in any country that implemented it. As Leslie's case shows, an enormous amount of the machinery of government and that half-government corporate NGO penumbra that surround it in most wealthy societies, is just there to make poor people feel bad about themselves. It's an extraordinarily expensive moral game played to prop up a largely useless global work machine. Candy. Let me give an example. Recently, I was thinking maybe I'd foster a kid. So I looked into the package. It's quite generous. You get a council flat, and on top of that, you get 250 pounds a week to look after the child. But then I realized, wait a minute, they're talking about 13,000 pounds a year and an apartment for one child, which the child's parents, in probably most cases, didn't have. If we'd just given the same thing to the parents so they didn't get into so many problems, they'd never have had to foster the child to begin with. And of course, that's not even counting the cost of the salaries of the civil servants who arrange and monitor fosterage, the building and upkeep of the offices in which they work, the various bodies that monitor and control those civil servants, the building and upkeep of the offices in which they work, and so forth. This is not the place to enter into arguments about how a basic income program might actually work. For the most thorough recent exploration of the current arguments for basic income, see Standing 2017. If it seems implausible to most, but where would the money come from? It's largely because we've all grown up with largely false assumptions about what money is, how it's produced, what taxes are really for, and a host of other issues that lie far beyond the scope of this volume.
Waters are further muddied by the fact that there are radically different visions of what a universal income is and why it would be good to have one. Ranging from a conservative version that aims to provide a modest stipend as a pretext to completely eliminate existing welfare state provisions like free education or health care and just submit everything to the market, to a radical version such as Leslie and Candy support, which assumes existing unconditional guarantees like the British National Health Service will be left in place. In fact, in some ways, they might have to be expanded. One could make the argument UBI wouldn't work with a rent-based economy because, say, if most homes were rented, landlords would just double rents to grab the additional income. At the very least, controls would have to be imposed. One sees basic income as a way of contracting. The other sees it as a way of expanding the zone of unconditionality. This latter is the kind that I would myself be able to get behind. I do this despite my own politics, which is quite explicitly anti-statist. As an anarchist, I look forward to seeing states dismantled entirely, and, in the meantime, have no interest in policies that will give states more power than they have already. But oddly, this is why I can get behind basic income. Basic income might seem like it is a vast expansion of state power, since presumably it's the government, or some quasi-state institution like a central bank, that would be creating and distributing the money, but, in fact, it's exactly the reverse. Huge sections of government, and precisely the most intrusive and obnoxious ones, since they are most deeply involved in the moral surveillance of ordinary citizens, would be instantly made unnecessary and could be simply closed down. This is also why conditional versions of the same program, or guaranteed jobs programs, are in no sense variations on, let alone improved versions of, the same thing. The key to UBI is the unconditional element, which allows for a massive reduction of the role of government intrusion in citizens' lives. These supposedly modified or improved versions either will not do this or will have the opposite effect. Yes, millions of minor government officials and benefit advisors like Leslie would be thrown out of their current jobs. But they'd all receive basic income too. Maybe some of them will come up with something genuinely important to do, like installing solar panels, as Leslie suggests, or discovering the cure for cancer. But it wouldn't matter if they instead formed jug bands, devoted themselves to restoring antique furniture, spelunking, translating Mayan hieroglyphics, or trying to set the world record for having sex at an advanced age. Let them do what they like. Whatever they end up doing, they will almost certainly be happier than they are now, imposing sanctions on the unemployed for arriving late at CV-building seminars or checking to see if the homeless are in possession of three forms of ID. And everybody else will be better off for their newfound happiness. Even a modest basic income program could become a stepping stone toward the most profound transformation of all, to unlatch work from livelihood entirely. As we saw in the last chapter, a strong moral case can be made for paying everyone the same regardless of their work. Yet the argument cited in that chapter did assume people were being paid for their work, and this would at the very least require some kind of monitoring bureaucracy to ensure that people were, in fact, working, even if it did not have to measure how hard or how much they produced. A full basic income would eliminate the compulsion to work by offering a reasonable standard of living to all, 
and then either leaving it up to each individual to decide whether they wish to pursue further wealth by doing a paying job or selling something or whether they wish to do something else with their time. Alternately, it might open the way to developing better ways of distributing goods entirely. Money is, after all, a rationing ticket, and in an ideal world, one would presumably wish to do as little rationing as possible. Obviously, all this depends on the assumption that human beings don't have to be compelled to work, or at least to do something that they feel is useful or beneficial to others. As we've seen, this is a reasonable assumption. Most people would prefer not to spend their days sitting around watching TV, and the handful who really are inclined to be total parasites are not going to be a significant burden on society, since the total amount of work required to maintain people in comfort and security is not that formidable. The compulsive workaholics, who insist on doing far more than they really have to, would more than compensate for the occasional slackers. Obviously, moral philosophy tends to assume that the free-rider problem is a fundamental question of social justice, outweighing considerations of human freedom, and therefore usually concludes that it would be justifiable to set up a system of surveillance and coercion so as to ensure that not even a small number of people live off of others' work, unless they're rich, in which case that's usually somehow totally okay. My own position, which is the typical libertarian socialist position, is, so what if they do? Finally, the concept of unconditional universal support is directly relevant to two issues that have come up repeatedly over the course of this book. The first is the sadomasochistic dynamic of hierarchical work arrangements, a dynamic that tends to be sharply exacerbated when everyone knows the work to be pointless. A lot of the day-to-day -day misery in working people's lives springs directly from this source. In Chapter 4, I cited Lynn Chancer's notion of sadomasochism in everyday life, and particularly the point that, unlike actual BDSM play, where there's always a safe word, when normal people fall into the same dynamic, there's never such an easy way out. You can't say orange to your boss. It's always occurred to me, this insight is important and could even become the basis for a theory of social liberation. I like to think that Michel Foucault, the French social philosopher, was moving in this direction before his tragic death in 1984. Foucault, according to people who knew him, underwent a remarkable personal transformation on discovering BDSM, turning from a notoriously cagey and standoffish personality to one suddenly warm, open, and friendly. I never met Foucault, but I based my descriptions on some of those who did. But his theoretical ideas also entered into a period of transformation that he was never able to fully bring to fruit. Foucault, of course, is famous mainly as a theorist of power, which he saw as flowing through all human relationships, even as the basic substance of human sociality, since he once defined it as simply a matter of acting on another's actions. It's sometimes said that Foucault never defines power, and it's true that he was often slightly coy about the matter, but when he did, he defined power as a set of actions on others' actions, and its exercise as acting on another's actions. This is, surprisingly, closer to the Parsonian tradition than anything else. This always created a peculiar paradox, because 
While he wrote in such a way as to suggest he was an anti-authoritarian opposed to power, he defined power in such a way that social life would be impossible without it. At the very end of his career, he seems to have aimed to resolve the dilemma by introducing a distinction between what he called power and domination. The first, he said, was just a matter of strategic games. Everyone is playing power games all the time. We can hardly help it, but neither is there anything objectionable about our doing so. So in this, his very last interview, power is not an evil. Power is strategic games. We know very well that power is not an evil. Take, for example, sexual relationship or love relationships. To exercise power over another in a sort of open strategic game where things could be reversed, that is not evil. That is part of love, passion, of sexual pleasure. It seems to me we must distinguish the relations of power as strategic games between liberties, strategic games that result from the fact that some people try to determine the conduct of others, and the states of domination, which are what we ordinarily call power. Foucault isn't quite explicit on how we are to distinguish one from the other, other than to say that in domination, things are not open and cannot be reversed. Otherwise, fluid relations of power become rigid and congealed. He gives the example of the mutual manipulation of teacher and student, power good, versus the tyranny of the authoritarian pedant, domination bad. I think Foucault is circling around something here and never quite gets to the promised land. A safe word theory of social liberation. Because this would be the obvious solution. It's not so much that certain games are fixed. Some people like fixed games for whatever reason, but that sometimes you can't get out of them. The question then does indeed become, what would be the equivalent of saying orange to one's boss? or to an insufferable bureaucrat, obnoxious academic advisor, or abusive boyfriend? How do we create only games that we actually feel like playing, because we can opt out at any time? In the economic field, at least, the answer is obvious. All of the gratuitous sadism of workplace politics depends on one's inability to say, I quit, and feel no economic consequences. If Annie's boss knew Annie's income would be unaffected even if she did walk off in disgust at being called out yet again for a problem she'd fixed months ago, she would know better than to call her into the office to begin with. Basic income in this sense would indeed give workers the power to say orange to their boss. Which leads to the second theme. It's not just that Annie's boss would have to treat her with at least a small degree of dignity and respect in a world of guaranteed incomes. If universal basic income was instituted, it's very hard to imagine jobs like Annie's long continue to exist. One could well imagine people who didn't have to work to survive still choosing to become dental assistants or toy makers or movie ushers or tugboat operators or even sewage treatment plant inspectors. It's even easier to imagine them choosing to become some combination of several of these. It's extremely difficult to imagine someone living without financial constraints choosing to spend any significant amount of their time highlighting forms for a medical care cost management company, let alone in an office where underlings were not allowed to speak. 
In such a world, Annie would have no reason to give up on being a preschool teacher, unless she actually decided she was no longer interested in being a preschool teacher. And if medical care cost management companies continued to exist, they would have to figure out another way to highlight their forms. It's unlikely medical care cost management companies would exist for long. The need for such firms, if you can even call it a need, is a direct result of a bizarre and labyrinthine U.S. healthcare system which overwhelming majorities of Americans see as idiotic and unjust, and which they wish to see replaced by some kind of public insurance or public health provider. As we have seen, one of the main reasons this system has not been replaced, at least if President Obama's own account is to be believed, is precisely because its inefficiency creates jobs like Annie's. If nothing else, universal basic income would mean millions of people who recognize the absurdity of this situation will have the time to engage in political organizing to change it, since they will no longer be forced to highlight forms for eight hours a day or, if they insist on doing something useful with their lives, scramble around for an equivalent amount of time trying to figure out a way to pay the bills. It's hard to escape the impression that for many of those who, like Obama, defend the existence of bullshit jobs, that's one of the most appealing things about such arrangements. As Orwell noted, a population busy working, even at completely useless occupations, doesn't have time to do much else. At the very least, this is further incentive not to do anything about the situation. Be this as it may, however, it opens the way to my second and final point. The first objection typically raised when someone suggests guaranteeing everyone a livelihood, regardless of work, is that if you do so, people simply won't work. This is just obviously false, and at this point, I think we can dismiss it out of hand. The second, more serious objection is that most will work, but many will choose work that's of interest only to themselves. The streets would fill up with bad poets, annoying street mimes, and promoters of crank scientific theories, and nothing would get done. What the phenomenon of bullshit jobs really brings home is the foolishness of such assumptions. No doubt a certain proportion of the population of a free society would spend their lives on projects most others would consider to be silly or pointless. But it's hard to imagine how it would go much over 10 or 20%. But already, right now, 37 to 40% of workers in rich countries already feel their jobs are pointless. Roughly half the economy consists of, or exists in support of, bullshit. And it's not even particularly interesting bullshit. If we let everyone decide for themselves how they were best fit to benefit humanity with no restrictions at all, how could they possibly end up with a distribution of labor more inefficient than the one we already have? This is a powerful argument for human freedom. Most of us like to talk about freedom in the abstract, even claim that it's the most important thing for anyone to fight or die for. But we don't think a lot about what being free or practicing freedom might actually mean. The main point of this book was not to propose concrete policy prescriptions, but to start us thinking and arguing about what a genuine free society might actually be like. That concludes Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Thank you for listening.
Fuck capitalism and its subservience.